into Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. What other strong podcast to step through? Think of how many weak podcasts you slept through. Well, time's up. I'm sorry I kept you. That's the R, the A, to the K-I-M. If it wasn't, then why would I say I am the greatest of all time, the God himself? Just want to apologize for taking so long in between podcasts, but there's a lot of things I want to get into starting right now. Cam Newton has found himself a team to play for. What a team it is, man. The New England Patriots, woo-wee. First reported by ESPN at Adam Schefter last Monday, Newton agrees to a one-year deal with the New England Patriots. Terms of the contract, according to CBS Sports, Jason Lafcanforium, Newton's contract is for one year, a 1.05 minimum base, 550 guaranteed. At signing, up to $6.45 million in percentives. Nice change if you can get it. No clause restricting a 2021 franchise tag. The Basically, the Patriots got him for less than a backup offensive lineman. Got him on the cheap. And according to Sports Illustrated Albert Breer, Belichick contacted North Turner, Newton's offensive coordinator in Carolina, to see what he was like behind the scenes. Basically, if he can form to the Patriots way. And it re- reported that Turner told Belichick, he said, quote, my whole deal is when Cam was healthy, and when we were with him in 2018, we were 6-2. and two. We Just look at the tape, played his ass off. This issue was more health than anything else. And from what I understand, I don't think he, I don't think these are health issues that can't be overcome. He's had time off now. I think he'll be great. So, all right. He continued, Turner continued with, I think it'll be good for Cam. And I think it'll be good for the Patriots. And if you think about it, really, over the past 20 years, of course, Belichick, has been working with Tom Brady, a quarterback and style that is completely different than Cam Newton. But yet still, Belichick has always been a fan of Newton abilities. In one of his press conferences, he made a comment about Newton from uh, 2017, lauding over the fact that in terms of his style of quarterbacking, that, shall we say, CM, CN, is the cream of the crop. There you have it. 
Newton would be at the top of his list in terms of quarterbacks who are tough to handle and tackle, can throw, run, make good decisions, can do many things in many different ways. He is public enemy number one in that regard. No offense to Chuck D, Flavor Flay, Professor Griff, or Terminator X, but in terms of the football playing abilities back in 2017, yes, Bill Belichick spoke highly of Cam Newton and the things that he can bring to you at the football field, on the football field. Man, many people are sitting up here talking about, well, you know, this was a home run situation for the New England Patriots. This was a situation where the Patriots now have to be considered one of the favorites to win the AFC East. This is definitely a situation where the Patriots are now one of the teams that could vie for the championship and all those type of things. And at first, I was a little bit trepidatious in terms of that. Uh, you know, we're speaking about a 31-year-old Cam Newton. We're speaking about a guy who's been having injury history, all those type of things. But then I thought about it. Then I sat back and I said to myself, now, I've always been one of those guys. When it comes to Bill Belichick, when it comes to him and his coaching decisions, and when it comes to him being a coach, we are speaking about one of the greatest, if not the greatest NFL head coaches of all time. And I've always had this moniker. I've always had this saying. I've always had this philosophy when it comes to Bill Belichick and his sidekick or his partner in crime, Tom Brady, for the past 15 years when it comes to the New England Patriots. I always would bring myself back to the song by Jim Croce when we're speaking about when is it time to jump off the New England Patriots bandwagon? When was it time as far as the tenure of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and the championships and the uh, acclimates and everything that came to the New England Patriots? When was it time to finally jump off the bandwagon? When was it time to pronounce the dynasty is dead in New England? in terms of Belichick and Brady. And whenever I would think about this could be the time, this could be the place, this could be the moment in time and happening, I would always, again, go back to Jim Croce as he uttered these famous words, and I would just kind of mix them up a little bit to fit the narrative of what I was trying to say, which is you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off an old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with the dynasty of the New England Patriots but Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Yeah, I think Jim Mr. Croce, God rest his soul, can sing it and say it just a little bit better. And they say you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull a mask off that old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. I don't do that. You don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off of old old ranger, and you don't mess around with Bill Belichick, man, boom, 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 no, you don't mess around with Bill Belichick when it comes to the football decisions. So along with asking North Turner, Cam's old offensive coordinator, I'm quite sure Belichick did some background work on his injury situation has experience in multitude of significant injuries in his nine-year career when you're speaking about the Panthers. So how is that going to translate over to what he's going to be bringing with the New England Patriots? The worst of it, when you're speaking about Newton's injuries, has occurred in the last two seasons. He missed the final two games of the 2018 season due to shoulder surgery that dramatically snapped his throwing strength and later required surgery. He landed on Injury reserve with a foot injury in 2019 after looking like a shell of of his former self in the Patriots' first two games. So I don't know. In fact, now we've got this situation here where people are talking about, 
well, you know, Cam is back. Cam is back. Well, what kind of back is Cam going to be? The 2015 Cam Newton ain't coming back. The 2016 Cam Newton ain't coming back. The 2017 Cam Newton, which Bill Belichick called public enemy number one, the best of the best in terms of the type of play that he has from the quarterback position. That Cam Newton is not coming back, and he's not playing for the New England Patriots. We're getting a 31-year-old Cam Newton who has been injury-prone the last couple of years. What is he going to bring? In fact, one of the former teammates of Newton's in the uh, Panthers organization, he's sitting up there talking about, you know what, don't blame Cam for the injury that's he, that he occurred in Carolina. Don't be sitting up there talking about, well, he's done because of the injuries. This was a situation where if you're speaking with Mike Tolbert, former fullback of the uh, Panthers and Newton's teammate for years, what he told the Athletic, it was more a situation of the Panthers organization and the training uh, folks fucking up more than anything else. In fact, they said, let me see, he said, he told the Athletic, they've been doing him wrong timing-wise for the past two or three years, if you ask me. If goes back to his shoulder surgery 2018, everybody knew his shoulder was messed up in the middle of the year two years ago. Tolbert's up there talking about, but they waited until the offseason to get ready to start to have sh- uh, shoulder surgery. Makes no sense. Timing's off. As soon as he got hurt last pro- uh, preseason to get the Patriots, they were saying, oh, He's got a high ankle sprain. I looked at it on film carefully. It's not a high ankle sprain. You could tell that 10 minutes after the play. You knew it's a mild foot sprain, Liz Frank, something like that. But you wait until December for him to beg you to have surgery? He shouldn't have been out there in week one and two. He shouldn't have been out there probably until week four or five at minimum. Now, I'm taking a look at this comment by Tolbert. And the one thing that kind of astounds me is the fact that I had no fucking idea that Mike Tolbert was a medical expert. Hot damn. How about that shit, huh? As soon as, here's the quote, as soon as he got hurt last preseason against the Patriots, they were saying, oh, he's got a high ankle sprain. I looked at it on film carefully. It's not a high ankle sprain. You could tell that 10 minutes after the play. You knew it's a mild foot sprain, Liz Frank, something like that. Shit, I didn't know Mike Tolbert. I didn't know that the man had that type of medical background. Didn't know that someone without a medical degree or experience could diagnose the difference between a high ankle sprain and a Liz Frank injury by looking at game film. How about that? I'll be goddamn. So what you're trying to tell me is that, you know, I've been, my knee's been kind of messed up now. You know, I've been on the treadmill a little bit. I'm fat and I'm out of shape, trying to get back into shape so to try to get myself back to ground zero so where I can start lifting some weights, where I can start doing some squats and start doing some weight training, bearing exercises that I've been on the Stairmaster, I've been on the um, treadmill, and right now my knee's a little bit sore. So what I need to do is I need to go ahead next time, film myself doing my exercises and send them to Mike Tolbert to ask him exactly what do I've got? Do I've got tendonitis? Do, what, do I got a pull meniscus? I mean, what the fuck do I have? Because obviously Mike Tolbert can tell what type of injury you have just by taking a look at game film. Jeez, man. I mean, you're going to put this on the Carolina medical staff? I'm not saying that those guys were 100% correct in their diagnosis, but I'm going to take the I'm going to take the words and I'm going to take the assessment of the trained medical staff over Mike Tolbert 
as uh, at the football player. And I'm not saying that Mike Tolbert is dumb or anything like that, but uh, once again, how many days, how many minutes, how many seconds has Mike Tolbert spent in medical school for him to be diagnosis in, diagnosing injuries just by taking a look at a bunch of goddamn game film? Great statement by Belichick about injuries and NFL team trainers and all that type of stuff. There was a time where people were asking or the media was asking Belichick about, you know, if this player is going to play, what's his diagnosis, what has he got, and all these type of things. I don't know if it was immediately after the game or a couple of days after the game, you know, when they hold their Monday morning press conferences or whatever, but the folks, the reporters were asking Belichick about, hey, you know, what? what's up with this guy? What does he have? What's the diagnosis? Is he going to be able to play next week? And Belichick kept saying, I have no idea. Check with the doctors. Check with the team trainers. And he said, you know what? Coaches coach, players play, Trainers treat injured players. And he made the statement that trainers had never drawn up a game plan and I've never done surgery. Works out well that way. Amen, brother. Amen, coach. I hear what you're talking about. So, I don't know, man. Who knows what type of situation injury-wise Cam Newton is going to be. And even if he's 100%, it seems like every year Newton has some type of injury, whether it's lingering or whether it's serious. So, we'll have to take a look at that. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us. So when it comes to the Patriots and Newton, I think this is a great short-term investment for both the Patriots and for Newton, which is one of the reasons why after my initial trepidation of saying, oh, gee whiz, man, I mean, 31 years old, blah, 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 I have to also remember that, you know what? A, Bill Belichick knows what he's doing. B, he's done the groundwork. He's done the homework to go ahead and make this decision. C, they're getting him basically a cheap, and D, Bill Belichick knows about all of this stuff a lot more than I do. So in the final assessment that I have, giving my thoughts and opinions about it, is short term, it's a great risk for both New England and um, Cam Newton. If Newton can regain the form that made him a franchise quarterback, there's no better place to try than New England. As you're speaking about Josh McDaniels, especially when there's a starting position open, he could have gone and maybe gone to uh, New Orleans, but Jameis Winston is there. He could have gone maybe to somewhere like uh, Kansas City and learned under Eric B. Enemy and Andy Reid, but Patrick Mahomes is there. So the situation for him to play and improve his game, improve some of the weaknesses throughout his career, I think that uh, it strengthened his strength and highlighted his strength, I think, and the places that he had to go and the opportunities that he had at this present time, I think New England, Belichick as your coach, Josh McDaniels as your offensive coordinator, is the best place for him. So if you're speaking about short-term investments being a good thing for New England, if healthy for 2020, repeat, if healthy for 2020, one more time, if healthy for 2020, repeat after me, class, Cam Newton, if healthy for what year? 2020. Exactly. Newton is a possible upgrade, possible upgrade, maybe an upgrade, should be an upgrade, possible upgrade from the quarterbacks on the roster for New England right now. I mean, he can make them favorites to win the ANC East if we're speaking about in terms of quarterback ratings and you compare Newton's quarterback ratings with the rest of the quarterbacks right now in the ANC East. Newton's career quarterback rating is 83. Miami Dolphins' Ryan Fitzpatrick is tw- uh, 71. Buffalo Bills' Josh Allen, quarterback rating is 68. The New York, New York Jets' Sam Darnold's QB rating is 64.5. Now, I'm expecting an improvement from both Darnold and Allen. 
especially when you're speaking about Josh Allen getting a wide receiver like Stephon Diggs to go ahead with John Brown. But really, if you take a look at those numbers, a lot of that is stewed into the pot of Cam Newton, his nine-year career, and Ryan Fitzpatrick, whether he's going to be starting the entire season or some of the season with Tua Tungabailoa now at the number one draft pick for the Miami Dolphins. When is he going to get his opportunity to play? And again, we're speaking about young quarterbacks just starting their careers. I believe Sam Darnold and Josh Allen are going to be starting their third year as a quarterback. So try to comparing those guys based on their numbers with Cam Newton, I think is uh, quite unfair. And when you think about it, you take a look at Buffalo, Josh Allen is the white man's Cam Newton in terms of his style of play and in terms of some of his strengths and some of his weaknesses. A big, strong quarterback who can, who has a howitzer for an arm, can run, is physical, but has accuracy issues. So that's kind of lining up with the type of quarterback that Cam Newton was in his younger days at the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. So, in the conference, look, New England had the best coach. They have the best coaching staff. When you take a look at the offensive and defensive coordinators, um, they have the second best defense behind Buffalo. They have the winning experience. They have the championship experience. They have the Super Bowl experience. This is a situation, again, where, yeah, you first take a look and you say, hmm, yeah, <laughs> if this was something as far as the situation with the New York Jets, if this was a decision made by someone like, the Jacksonville Jaguars are bringing in Cam Newton to be your starting quarterback with the idea of the franchise, say, in Detroit or maybe somewhere. Uh, let's speak about, oh, my goodness, who's a mediocre to bad team? If we're speaking about someone like maybe the Arizona Cardinals, well, then maybe my eyes would be a little bit more wide, my ears would be a little bit more open, and my skepticism would be a little bit higher. But speaking about Cam Newton's decision to play in New England and Bill Belichick wanting Cam Newton to play for New England, especially at the low risk that they have in terms of financial investment, I think uh, in the short term, New England and Cam Newton are going to be good for each other. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about the news in the NFL. Cam Newton. Cam joining the New England Patriots. I mentioned before that for the short term, when you're speaking about the risk reward, I think if you take a look at the quarterback that New England had on their roster before they got Cam Newton, Brian Hoyer, Jared Stidham, even though the Patriots absolutely love Jared Stidham. I think that this was an upgrade for them. Does it make, does it make them Super Bowl contenders? Does it make them conference contenders uh, did that put them in the same class as such elite teams Super Bowl contending teams as the New Orleans Saints or the Kansas City Chiefs or the Baltimore Ravens or the San Francisco 49ers I don't know man I I, I just know <laughs> I just and I, and I think in a situation when I say high risk high reward great short-term investment for both the Patriots and Cam Newton. I'm speaking in terms of Newton having the opportunity to resurrect his career in terms of using this as a springboard to get himself more money, to get himself a better opportunity, whether it's with New England or somebody else. And for New England, what do you have to lose? 
this is not something that you're investing when you're speaking about Cam Newton. This is not a situation where you're investing big money or a number of years or a hit on the salary cap or anything like that. This is just something to where, you know what, you have the opportunity to where if this doesn't work, you don't even have to keep them for the entire season. If you're speaking about the guaranteed money, they can't, I mean, they've, they've done worse with less when you're speaking about the New England Patriots. So what type of impact is Newton going to have for the Patriots? You know, because of the acquisition, as I mentioned before, this folks on ESPN and the Shannon the Skip show and those on Fox Sports and Pro Football Talk are talking about the Patriots being pseudo to really decent contenders for the for the Super Bowl championship. In fact, former NFL quarterback Phil Simms' son, Chris Simms, thinks this will be a successful football marriage between Newton and the New England Patriots. Uh, I, I really, I think it's going to be a very good marriage. I do. I honestly think the Patriots are built more, built better right now to play Cam Newton style of football than they are the Tom Brady style of football. And I say that because all the running backs, some of the, re- the receivers you have and the versatility they have with the Marquise Lees, the Edelman, the Muhammad Sanu, the Nikhil Harry, all these guys could like run wide receiver reverses, wide receiver passes, fake it to the wide receiver on the reverse, and then he continues on the route. So they're very interchangeable along with the running back to be interchangeable. And we know the offensive line is, you know, had a down year last year, but I think it's better than what it played last year. And Dave Andrews being back to where I go, they might be able to play this Cam Newton defensive game, Cam Newton run the ball, play action pass. I think it actually suits the roster quite well. The Patriots are better built to play Cam Newton's type football than Tom Brady type of football. Now, that's interesting. And Sims was talking about from the audio that they could use more trickery with the wide receivers and running backs that they have, that they could have those skilled players do reverses and wide receiver passes and fake to the wide receiver and run the ball and the offensive line should be improved to play Cam Newton's style of game, which is basically running the football and not having to drop back. 30 to 35 to 40 times a game? I don't know, man. I, I, I don't know. So Chris Sims is sitting up there talking about the marriage could work. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have an AFC East head coach talking about, you know, talking about the deal. He said, I think they're going to keep three quarterbacks, use Cam Newton perhaps as a wild card. I actually don't see him starting week one in the offense. I know one thing for a fact that the Patriots love Jarrett Stidham. Interesting. Interesting. I don't. I don't know. And of course, the you know the the mini mooly spineless answer is to say you know it's either going to be one way or the other. I don't know if it's going to be that much to an extreme. I don't know. I'm not going to prognosticate that Cam Newton is going to be the thing that gets New England back in the Super Bowl. I'm also not going to say that Cam Newton is going to be cut before Week Five, and they're going to just going to go with Jared Stidham because the team is going to be one and four and floundering. On offense, I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle, closer to what the AFC head coach said about Cam not being the guy that many people thought they are. Again, I think as far as the risk-reward is concerned, that it's a great move by both the Patriots and for Cam Newton. Especially, he's posting these videos talking about him throwing the ball well, and he seemed to be over those injury situation and. Belichick doing his due diligence, speaking with North Turner and knowing football much more than I do, him going with this decision. But 
man, I'm, I'm just thinking it from this point. And, and these are some of the questions that I have about the signing, especially if you're speaking about Cam Newton's arrival on the team to be the starting quarterback, catapults New England into a position where they're going to be vying for the elite of the elite top six, top seven status in terms of the elite teams in the NFL. And then at that case, being a playoff season away from winning a championship once it starts. The question I have is what kind of help for Cam is he going to be getting from the skill players? Yeah, Chris Sims is talking about they have the players to run reverses and all these type of trickery things and all these type of gimmicky things. Well, if that's the case, why didn't New England, why didn't Josh McDaniel try to apply some of those things back when Tom Brady was the quarterback, when the offense week after week after week after week was struggling for Patriots' uh, concerns. Why didn't he try any of that? For me, running those type of things, and how many times are you going to ask them to do that? Is that going to be a staple of your offense? Are you going to be looking to gimmick your way to uh, scoring touchdowns and putting points on the board? I don't think that you can do that. A, I don't think you have the personnel. And B, even if you did have the personnel, I don't think in the NFL you have – I don't think the person – I think in the NFL you can't win football games that way. You, know, you have to block, you have to tackle, you have to pass, you have to run routes. I don't think that you can quote-unquote trick anybody. And as much as I love Josh McDaniel as an offensive coordinator, as far as play calling is concerned, he's not Kyle Shanahan. So you might be able to have Julian Edelman throw a pass. You might be able to run a couple of reverses. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But how does that entail Cam Newton elevating those players to make the New England Patriots serious Super Bowl contenders? Well, speaking of skilled players for the Patriots here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, the Patriots have one of the worst receiving cords in the league. They're just speaking about Julian Elliman, who's now 34. Mohamed Sanu just caught 207 yards receiving in eight games with the Patriots last year after, being, uh, after the Patriots gave up a second-round pick for uh, Sanu with the Atlanta Falcons. Nikhil Harry had only 107 yards in seven games, and this is with Tom Brady as the quarterback. While at 42 last season, not the greatest quarterback who's ever lived, but still a guy who is certainly between the number six and number ten ranked as far as quarterbacks are concerned. And if the Patriots struggle that way, what makes you think that Cam Newton's going to be able to elevate those skill players? The New England tight ends who have long been the staple as part of the Josh McDaniel, Bill Belichick offense, if you're speaking about Rob Gronkowski, if you're speaking about Aaron Hang Yourself Hernandez, take a look at the New England tight ends right now. They're Matt LaCrosse and some rookie I'd never heard of. The running backs for the Patriots, Sony Michelle and, uh, Sony Michelle and James White, they accumulated 1,150 yards on the ground in 2019, below average. If you're speaking about that combo, if you're speaking about that duo compared to other teams, as far as their running prowess is concerned. What makes anybody think that Cam Newton, who's always had difficulty with his accuracy, is going to make a better receiver for Julian Edelman, Muhammad Sanu, and Nikhil Harry? There's a reason why the Panthers would always bring in these big receivers, 6'4", 6'5", and such, because it gave Cam Newton more of latitude to not be as accurate as he was. And none of these guys I checked, Edelman, Sanu, Harry, or anybody else that they have on that roster, is 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", that could present a big target for Newton to throw to, not even at the tight end position. And again, relying on the running backs, Sony Michelle and James White, they're not 
franchise court, uh, running backs, even as a duo. So it's going to be interesting. What what type of impact can Newton have with the new environment of everyday life going on? I mean, how much of a lack of a um, of a of a training camp or OTAs or anything like that? How much is that going to hinder Newton? becoming the starting quarterback on opening day, even if the league is opening on opening day. With the pandemic going around, with the positive test rates moving up at a skyrocketing pace, with the second wave of this coronavirus coming in the fall, I mean, who fucking knows if we're even going to have football or if football's going to start on time. We don't know about the preseason games. We don't know about the training camps. They're supposed to be starting but July, uh, on July 28th, but we don't know what's going to be happening with the uh, COVID virus. We don't know what type of spikes or what type of decrease or anything in terms of what's going to be happening. We have no idea. Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniel has never worked with a quarterback like Cam Newton before. They've had the luxury. They've had the blessing to work with someone like a Cam Newton. Who knows what's going to be happening now, especially since they're not going to be getting that much work in preseason games. If you didn't, don't know, let me tell you. As first reported by NBC Sports, the 2020 preseason is going to be trimmed from four games to two games. Week one and week four of the NFL preseason have been scrapped. The Hall of Fame game is not going to be happening. Now, you can sit there and say week one, week four, big fucking deal. Those are the two most insignificant weeks in the preseason for starters. I get that. The fact that week one, the starters usually get one possession, two at the very most. Week four, they don't have, they don't get on the field basically at all, so they can decrease the risk of injury. But for the most part, the preseason is going to be wiping off two games. So how is Newton going to be able to acclimate himself with guys who, because he just signed, he didn't have the luxury or the ability that Tom Brady had when he signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He didn't have the same luxury as Sam Darnold has throwing to his wide receivers. He doesn't have the same luxury, let's say, that someone like a Lamar Jackson. Now, there's been wide receivers helping out Cam in terms of him rehabbing, in terms of his getting a straight and throwing the football and all those type of things. But running particular plays, running particular pass routes and everything, coming into an offense and learning a whole new language, I'm quite sure that right now, the information is being sent to him or the information has been sent to him. So Cam is starting to get himself acclimated with the Josh McDaniel playbook. But still, he's behind the curve when you're speaking about some of these quarterbacks like Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson and uh, Tom Brady and all these guys who are going out and working with their teammates, guys who are they're, they're going to be actually throwing passes to. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be interesting. And the Patriots just like everybody else, needs as much practice time as possible. And with this pandemic, we don't know. With the slice and half of preseason games being canceled, we don't know. There's a situation where there's a possibility that all four preseason games could be canceled. We don't know. We have no idea. It's going to be interesting. And again, as I speak about Cam Newton on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, Cam Newton of 2015, he ain't walking through that door, y'all. 2016, he ain't walking through that door, bro. 2017, my man, he ain't walking through that door. That version of Cam Newton is not coming back. The physical stature, the speed, the strength, everything that made Cam an MVP in 2015. For him to throw 3,800 yards, 495 passing attempts, 35 touchdown passes, only 10 interceptions, a passer rating close to 100. That Cam Newton ain't coming back. The man in 2015 who rushed for 636 yards. And 10 rushing touchdowns. 
That Cam Newton is not coming back. That guy is gone. So, exactly what type of guy are we getting? He ain't the guy that's going to be winning the MVP award. Now, if you think about it, as far as being the starting quarterback is concerned, ever since Cam, in that magical year for the Panthers of 2015, when he led them to a 15-1 season, led them to the Super Bowl, after that season, Carolina has only made it to the playoff once before the divorce between Newton and the Panthers franchise. So, I don't know, man. I don't know. And then again, it all goes back to, damn, what are we going to be dealing with as a society, as a as, as the world, dealing with pan, this pandemic? And who knows what's going to be happening in terms of how is the NFL going to be keeping its players safe Safety should be the issue. Safety should be paramount. Not contracting this virus should be the main deal, even though we know that there are going to be players if the NFL decides to start again on time, whenever they start before a vaccine is being is, is, is produced, which could, could come anywhere between eight months and two fucking years. But what are they going to be doing in terms of, we're speaking about things that no one can control. Yes, injuries you can't control. Without question, injuries are going to happen. We don't know who, we don't know when, but injuries are going to happen and you adjust. But in this situation where you have a virus going along right now, what's going to be happening? And maybe you can equate it to, because I'm about to say, you know, what happens if two of the Patriots wide receivers catch the coronavirus in the, in the meeting room, for instance? Or, of course, you're not going to know exactly when they get it caught, but what's going to be the protocol if Julian Elliman, God forbid, and Nikhil Harry get the coronavirus? How many people are going to have to be quarantined? We know that Edelman and, and Harry would be in that situation. What happens if a couple of offensive linemen get the coronavirus? Or what happens if one offensive lineman gets the coronavirus? Are all of the offensive linemen for that team going to have to be quarantined for two weeks? Are they just going to say one player and they're going to be risking it? Is it just going to be one player gets the coronavirus and they're just going to have to t uh, test the other offensive linemen on the team and then move on from there? What's going to be happening? We don't know. We exactly don't know. And in this environment, I don't know if you can sit there and prognosticate without any type of worry or any type of fear or any type of trepidation that Cam Newton is going to be this guy where many people are talking about leading the New England Patriots to the AFC East title and making them solid contenders for the Super Bowl championship or making them solid contenders to compete with teams such as the Kansas City Chiefs who brought back most of their players and most of their offensive weapons and kept their coaches, mainly the offensive coordinator and Eric Bieniemy. When you're speaking about the return of the Baltimore Ravens, who I'm quite sure are going to have something to play for, play with a chip on their shoulder after having a tremendous regular season last year where they finished 14-2, and but bowed out in unspectacular, flaming fashion against the Tennessee Titans. Their team, for the most part, is coming back. Their coordinators, for the most part, is coming back. You would have to go on the assumption that Lamar Jackson is going to have a better year or at least have the same type of year and improve in many different areas to keep Baltimore at the elite level. So in a situation like this, and then of course, and of course, this is just not related to just one team in terms of fear of the coronavirus because... I mean, Lamar Jackson gets the coronavirus, God forbid. That puts the expectations and the goals for the Baltimore Ravens in serious jeopardy. Patrick Mahomes gets the COVID. It puts the 
Kansas City Chiefs expectations in dire straits. So this is not just related to one team in terms of what they're going to have to do with the coronavirus if it comes down because, again, just like injuries in every single football team, this coronavirus is going to have an impact. Whether they start in September, whether they start in the spring, whether they start in December, whenever they start, this impact as far as the coronavirus and the positive tests are going to be one of the main stories of the NFL season. And it's going to be a large determining factor if the season goes on of who's going to win the championship. There could be a situation that we don't know where they could be starting four or five games and they might have to shut it down for another two months before they resume again. We don't know. We don't know. So under all of that uncertainty, to sit there and talk about, hey, you know what, Cam Newton's going to be doing this, that, and the other, and he's going to be leading them to new heights and all those type of things. If Tom Brady couldn't do it, what makes you think Cam Newton can do it? Cam Newton at 31 years old is not an upgrade at the quarterback position than a 43-year-old Tom Brady. So what makes you think that all of a sudden now, especially again, as I say again and again and again and again and again, the fact that what we're dealing with in this world with this virus, what makes you think that the New England Patriots with Cam Newton at their quarterback are in a better, stronger position to compete for a championship than they were 12 months ago, than they were eight months ago? I don't know. I don't know. So it'll be interesting. And I, I'll, I'll say it till. Whatever happens, happens. The risk-reward was there for the Patriots. The risk-reward is there for Cam Newton, for them to go ahead and to go ahead in this relationship. I just think when everything is all said and done, we don't know. And we're speaking about the preseason being cut short. We're speaking about Newton joining the same team or a new team for the first time in nine years. We're speaking about Josh McDaniels trying to coordinate and put together an offense for the first time in a while to fit the strength of Ken Newton when he's been dealing with your classic drop-back quarterback in Tom Brady. This is going to take a while for this to even mesh, for this to even work, for this to even reach the expectations of what many people are prognosticating when they're speaking about the New England Patriots winning the division and being contenders for a championship. This is going to take some time. I wouldn't be surprised if the NFL goes ahead to schedule and after five or six weeks, I wouldn't be surprised after six weeks if the Patriots, after six games, are sitting two and four, or sitting three and three, while Buffalo is five and one and four and two. It wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm not saying the season would be an abject failure, but this is something to where it's going to be a week-to-week type of progression for the Patriots in getting better chemistry, comfortability, everything as far as the offensive side is concerned. So, for Newton and the New England Patriots, good luck to you with the ways things are going right now in this world, with the way things are going on in this country. With the, I mean, the NFL players were already grossly wrong and definitely misread the whole concussion situation would put many players in peril. Are they going to do the same thing now with the coronavirus in terms of having those guys go out there and play? I mean, what happens if... Someone, God forbid, gets sick who's a starter on a team that's important, that's a franchise that's bound, that was supposed to be a contender. And God forbid that player not only gets sick, he doesn't come back after two weeks. And instead of just treating it like the flu, all of a sudden he has to go into the hospital. 
and he had to go on ICU, and his condition become grave. What type of stain is that going to leave for the NFL? Shit, you've already fucked up the Colin Kaepernick situation. You've already been grossly incompetent and completely misread the health and safety of the football player during the whole concussion situation. Now you're going to be doing dealing with this? So many things baked into this cake. So many ingredients put into this pot for you, for me, for you listening to this podcast, for those on ESPN, for those on Fox Sports, for those on the blogs, for those for the other sports uh, podcasts, for those at WEEI, for those who are at the Sports Hub in Boston to be sitting there and trying to give these concrete answers or prognostications of what the New England Patriots are going to be and what Cam Newton is going to be as a quarterback working with this team, I ain't going there. I won't go there. I'm not going there. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the activism world of sports, man. I tell you what, people, it's time for every NFL player, certain members of activist groups, it's time for this country to unite again. The nickname of the Washington professional football team, a.k.a. what I like to call the Washington Snyderskins, need to be changed. And for this fight, I know it's supposed to be inevitable. I know that Snyder is working on it. I know all of these things, but I don't trust him. I don't believe him. When he's talking about, I'm, I'm thinking that he's trying to throw an okie doke. I'm thinking that when he's sitting up there talking about, uh, yeah, we're going to think about it and we're going to investigate and we're going to talk and we're going to research and we're going to do all these things to me and my pessimistic style. That is nothing more than a smokescreen. Nah, man, that is something more than a diversion. I think that he's hoping, and I think Snyder is hoping and praying and for something to come up that kind of diverted the attention of this topic that we're discussing right now, and that way he can kind of slide into the season by still keeping this nickname. We need Black Lives Matter movement. We need the Move Two movement. We need the Gay and Lesbian movement. We need all types of movements for the betterment of this country, for the betterment of this world that brings unity, harmony, understanding, education. We need all of these things to come together and force the Washington football team, professional football team, to change its names. We need everybody, man. We need everybody from every walk of life with a good heart to go ahead and not let Daniel Snyder slide on this when you're speaking about it, man. So let's all get together and let's do this. The black and Hispanic communities, the gay and lesbian communities, the women community, the everything community, man. Let's get together and let's knock this down. So let me see. So this past Wednesday, this whole thing came up was that uh, Nike, FedEx, and Pepsi, Cola, each received letters signed by 87 investment firms and shareholders worth a combined $620 billion dollars 
asking the company to sever ties with the football team known as the Washington Redskins unless they change their controversial name. Native Americans want owner Daniel Snyder to change the name with the franchise's use since 1933. Groups protested the name and tried to win in court but failed. Uh, so now investors are trying to get their voices heard through the threat of the team losing money. As one former high-ranking Snyder Skins employee said, it's something that's different. So, yes. So if you want to get to some real change, if you want to get somebody's attention, especially someone who is as rich and powerful and prominent in the business as Daniel Snyder, yeah, you don't do it by marching. You don't do it through peaceful protests. You don't do it with appeasing. You don't do it by asking. You don't do it by saying, please, Danny boy. You don't use Gandhi's or MLK's type of a way of protesting, protesting, which is tugging on their heartstrings and hoping and praying that possibly it'll happen. Nah, man, there's two ways to do this. Violence and money. That's the way you do this. If you want somebody's attention, you go through the violence way or you go through it by threatening their pocketbook way when it comes to these billionaires like that. And that type of thing will get someone's attention. Most definitely. When they're talking about $620 billion, man. So with this being the nation's capital concerning this name, the Washington football team, you know that politics is going to be involved, right? Right, right. So... The Washington Post reported that Eleanor Holmes Norton, the firebrand, loved that woman, the District of Columbia's non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives, she made it clear what the change in the nickname would have, would have to happen before the football team would return to the district. Now, the lease on the land at FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland, up there in PG County, is up after the 2027 season, and the franchise is looking to move to sites in the district, Maryland, and Virginia, basically the uh, DMV. So they're speaking about places near Dulles International, near Dulles International Airport in Virginia. They're speaking about maybe possibly finding a site near the National Harbor in Maryland. Those are the other sites that are being considered. But uh, the district is sitting up there talking about, look, man, you need to come back to uh, D.C. I mean, what the fuck, man? It's the Washington fucking football team, baby! That's been ever since they moved back from Boston, when they were the Boston Braves and they came back to D.C. They've always been in the nation's capital again until 1996. So we need to get that team back in D.C. They played at RFK, that place was rocking, that place was a true home field advantage for my boys, for my team from D.C. So we need to bring them, they'll put them back in Virginia, Dulles Airport. Come on, man, that is way out there. You're speaking about folks in D.C. having to go way out to Dulles? Now, okay, you got the metro that goes off out there. There's plenty of land that they can build out there. It's a nice area when you're speaking about northern Virginia. You get on the uh, toll road, you go on up. The Dulles toll road to go on up. So you could go that way, I'm quite sure. But, man, no, no. First of all, that corridor in I-95 is a fucking bitch. No, the Beltway 495. That is a fucking bitch to go through, that Beltway up there. Tyson's Corner, that area up there. Man, it seems like they are just always having construction. Always, always, always. When I would go home, back to uh, the D.C. area, when I go back home to Silver Spring, you know, I would always go up and see my brother, Mikel Davis, and my wonderful, beautiful, talented, lovely, unbelievable goddaughter, Sydney Davis. I would always have to go through... I would always have to take the Beltway, Maryland, go over the bridge, 
um, go the 495 route to go into Virginia. And without doubt, without question, man, it was always a situation where there was always traffic because they were always doing some type of construction back back in that area. And it was like, you son of a bitch. Tyson's Corner, all, all those places down there. So to build a football stadium out there, man, I don't know. Again, it has access to the Metro, but still. No, and then when you're speaking about Har uh, National Harbor in Maryland, PG County, that's right across the bridge from um, Virginia. Again, it's not D.C. It's the Washington football team, not the Maryland football team, not the Northern Virginia football team. And if you really think about it, I mean, the way that area is growing, pretty soon it's going to have a situation where you could have another team separate in itself out there headed toward, um, headed toward I-66 in front Royal Virginia. Because if you keep taking the Dulles Toro Road, that's eventually that you run into. So, no, man, let's, let's bring the shit back to uh, D.C. So, there's officials, district officials, would like the franchise to return to the city where it played until leaving RFK in 1966 or 1966, 1996 season. The federal government owns the land, but Last year, Norton introduced a bill that called for it to be sold to the city at a fair market value. So according to the Post, there's a shared responsibility to decide how to then develop the, what, 190-acre property? And the mayor, the D.C. council, the residents would share in the decision-making in terms of what to do with that property. So, look, here's the bottom line, right? It's going to be a negotiation. How much is the district going to have to pay Snyder to drop the name and how much of the bill is the city going to have to foot for the building of the new stadium? But basically what it's going to be down to, that's what, but basically what it's going to come down to, Daniel Snyder ain't no dummy. Daniel Snyder is a businessman. He knows. He's like, okay, if y'all really want this. Now, of course, it's going to be public pressure to say, are you really going to keep the name after everything that's going down? Are you really going to be on the wrong side of history, D, uh, uh, DS? Are you really going down that path? So it's going to be that type of negotiation going through. But in the end, this has got to happen. That Washington football team, the Washington professional football team, the Snyderskins, man, they definitely need to change that name. Listen to it. Listen to it. Because that that song is going to have to be renamed. Because it's going to be coming pretty clear. It's going to be coming pretty clear that that nickname cannot stand anymore. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And here's the thing. This is why I'm so passionate. And this is why I'm urging my community, the black community, to get involved with this in terms of changing the name. And, and look. We know that changing the Washington football, the National Football Washington's 
football team is not going to uh, solve all the problems which is happening in the Native Americans community, there's still going to be alcoholism. There's still going to be spousal abuse. There's still going to be discrimination. There's still going to be oppression. There's still going to be poverty. There's still going to be all of those things as far as, you know, what's going down in that community. Changing the name isn't the panacea for those things to be better. I get that. Just like toppling statues, just like renaming names, just like doing the bare bone basics. Everybody talks about, well, like, you know, Jason Whitlock over there is up there talking about, well, you know, we need to just stop trying to concentrate so much or up there doing victory laps about people tearing down monuments and statues and taking down this and changing that because of the racist folks in the past and the Confederate flag and all of those things. Those are just surface things. Those really don't, those really don't get into the problem. God damn, Whitlock, you realize that it took 400 years of oppression, slavery, and second-class citizenship for us to get to this point, right? I mean, we can't turn that shit around in two fucking weeks. What, all of a sudden now, we're going to... We need to start with this. Let's start by the bare-bones minimum. Let's start with the obvious. Some of the things, some of the statues that we have up there that are glorifying traitors and racists and bigots and oppressors and slave masters and those who fought for tyranny and all those type of things in this country. Why do we have statues? Why are we naming buildings after these folks? Goddamn, we need to get the J. Edgar Hoover name off of the goddamn building down there. That sorry son of a bitch. How in the hell did that motherfucker ever get a goddamn name named after him for the shit that he did to black people? Fuck him. And we're going to be naming a name after him? Take that shit down, erase that shit down, vandalize that shit, do what you need to do. But that shit needs to be removed. Anything, J. Edgar Hoover, anything. As far as statues, monuments, anything. Take that shit off. And that stuff happened, what, 60 years ago? 70 years ago? We're speaking about taking down statues of those who fought for the separation of the country? And Whitlock is talking about, well, you know, those are just, I mean, he's poo-pooing that. Fuck you, man. Let's start with the bare-bone basics first. Man, before we can get into the crevices, before we can get down to the nitty-gritty, you know how much pain and strife and time it's going to take? And tearing down those statues, bringing down those statues, replacing those monuments, doing the things that what we need to do right now, do you know how long it's going to take for folks to come around to that idea? It ain't going to be my generation. It ain't going to be the generation before me. It's going to take about two or three generations before people finally come to the acceptance and the reality that, you know what? What was being placed as far as these monuments and everything glorifying these people were wrong. That shit ain't going to happen in 10 minutes. That shit ain't going to happen in 10 weeks. That shit ain't going to happen with Joe Biden being president. That shit ain't going to happen in a 30-32 election. This is a long, gradual road. Something that, sorry, I'm 51 years old. I'm not going to be able to see. Unless I live to be, I don't know, maybe 235 years old. And last time I checked, my eating habits are too terrible. And I'm too fucking fat to, to, to live that long. So we need to start dealing with this shit now. And it starts with, I mean, you're, you're up there asking folks to, Jason Whitlock wants people sprinting in the Olympics when we're, right now we're trying to learn how to walk. Shit, we're trying to learn how to crawl. And we're having op, you know, opposition and all this kind of stuff when we're trying to do just a bare bow minimum of 
taking away the Confederate flag in terms of glorifying it, in terms of bringing it out in public. We're talking about taking down statues. We're talking about renaming military bases in in uh, buildings at college campuses. And we're finding opposition with that. We're finding non-acceptance to that in some circles. If fucking Jason Whitlock wants to fucking sit there and talk about that's no big deal that we need to do more. Patience, you fat piece of shit. Patience. So, yeah, renaming the Washington professional football team going, going all the way back is not going to solve the issues, the problems in the Native American community. But shit, it's a start. Just like taking down them statues, taking down the Confederate flag, it ain't going to solve all the problems in terms of what the black community, what the brown community goes through. But shit, it's a start. It's moving forward. It's a positive step. And before we can even talk about defunding the police and police reform and criminal justice reform and housing discrimination and um, um, separate and unequal schools and, and, and integrated, segregated schools and all those type of things, before we can even get into the real nook and cranny of those things, until we can even, before we even start beginning to speak about those things, shit, we got to get people, the most people on the side of doing something as simple as, well, you know, uh, Andrew Johnson and Andrew Jackson were really racist bigots who were no good motherfuckers towards blacks, toward Native Americans. I mean, Andrew Jackson, there's, a, I heard um, a, a speech where there's a lot of Native Americans who hate $20 bills because it has the face of Andrew Jackson on it. And Andrew Jackson was the one who had the Indian Removal Act which was called the Trail of Tears, where he decided that, you know, for American expansion, for white American expansion, that he would basically eradicate the Native Americans, who were the original folks of this country. So, I mean, we're trying to educate folks on that. We're trying to get folks, the majority of folks, to sit there and realize that, oh, yeah, you know, maybe not glorifying, or maybe there should be some steps to kind of temper some of the things that we do to highlight or to bring out those type of things. And so, you know, take renaming the Washington football team, something different definitely needs to be done. And for me as a black man for years, I have not called the Washington football team by its nickname or, you know, the Washington blank skits. I, I, I hadn't gone there. I haven't gone there in years. And, you know, this is something that's been ingrained in me. I grew up in the D.C. area, man. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area where, you know, growing up, it was the Washington football team in terms of its love, the city's love, the area's love for its professional teams or for its sports teams. The number one team, without doubt, without question, without any type of argument, was the Washington Blankskins. And then after that, depending upon where you were, the second most important or most watched or most beloved sport or team in the Washington DC metropolitan area after the Washington football team was the Georgetown Hoyas or the Maryland Terrapins, their basketball team, followed by the Washington Bullets, followed by the Washington Capitals, the national, uh, the um, NHL team. But by far, without question, the Washington football team, I mean, that was the identity of the city was speaking about that. You know, and again, then you had, you know, my man, John Thompson, for the Georgetown Hoyas, Lefty Drizel, coaching the Maryland basketball team, the Washington Bullets with one son, several of those guys. So, I mean, it was, 
So it was hard. It was hard because you grew up not even thinking about it. I never, the, the Washington Lanskins, I never thought about it offending anybody or thinking it was a big deal. That was going on now four plus decades. I was sitting there going, hey, what's the big deal? But then when I started hearing Native Americans come out and I really thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? Those, those guys are right. And I'm, and I'm going to listen to those guys. And it would be, for me, it would be, and for my community, and for every other community that's being oppressed right now, we're fighting for our freedom and for our rights. For us, it would be ignorant. It would be stupid. It would be narrow-minded. It would be short-sighted. It would be self-defeating. It would be all of those things if we took the same tack that we complain about with white people, some white people take with us, when they sit there and they try to tell us what it's like to be black. White folks love to sit there and say, I don't know what it's like to be black. I've never walked in your shoes but I'm not because I'm not black. But then tell us what we should feel offended by. Then tell us what racism is all about. Then try to tell us that, oh, no, no, police brutality is not really a thing. Oh, no, 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 criminal justice is not really a thing. Oh, no, 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 you're not being targeted. Oh, no, 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 you're not being discriminated against. Oh, no, no, no. I've never been in those situations. I've never had the police treat me like that. I've never been um, not qualified for a job just because of the color of my skin. Oh, no, no, no. I've never, oh, no. You guys, I mean, we have a, you know, we voted in a black president. What more do you guys want? Jesus Christ. What's that and the other? I mean, we've got black mayors. We got black governors. We got black this and we got black that. What more do you people want? Gosh, golly, gee whiz. So nothing irritates me more. Nothing irritates, listen, guys, now we're, we're teaching here. Teachable moment. Listen, learn, educate, listen, learn, educate. No, 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 shut the fuck up. Listen, learn, educate, listen. I'm speaking. Shut up and listen. Education coming through right now. Better yourself. Learn, grow, mature. Nothing aggravates black folks more when white folks try to tell us what it's all about concerning our community, especially when those white folks really don't have any type of interaction with black folks at all. If you're getting your news from Tucker Carlson, if you're getting your news from Laura Ingram, if you're getting your news from Candace Owens, if your thoughts and feelings are being shaped by Coombs and House Negroes and Sambos like the Hodgkin Twins and Uncle Toms like Paris Denard and clowns like Candace Owens, and you sit there and say, see, I told you black people weren't, or this, that, and the other. Look what Paris Denard just said. If you're, no. No, education, shut up and listen. Education, when 80% of black folks feel one way, go with the 80%, all right? When 85, 90% of black folks are telling you this is the way it goes, believe in the 85 to 90% black folks. Pay no attention to the coons in the corner. Pay no attention to the grifters in the corner. Pay no attention to the Sambos in the corner. Pay no attention to the minstrel show over in the corner. Don't pay any attention to them. 85, 90% plus of black folks agreeing on something, trying to tell you something. Don't go to the Hodgkin twins. Don't go to Candace Owens. Don't go to Larry Elder. Don't go to those coons. Don't go to those minstrel shows. Don't go to those pieces of shit. Don't go to those disgraces to the race. Don't go to those sellouts. Don't go to any of them. 
Don't go to those house Negroes. Don't go to them. Because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Or they're playing you. They're playing you with misinformation. They're giving you something that you want to hear that you don't want to admit. So it kind of makes you feel better. So it gives them more clicks. And it gives them more opportunities. And it gives them more chances for them to make money on the other side. On the devil's side. On the wrong side. On the white folks' side. Which is on the wrong side when it comes to the majority of things that people are telling you of color concerning our community. 85 to 90% shut up and listen. 85 to 90% of what black folks are telling you is correct. And it ain't nothing about Sister Soldier. It ain't nothing about marching and anything. It's the goddamn truth. So there you go. So my only thing is, is that we, black folks in the community, and Asians, and Hispanics, and others, we can't treat Native Americans concerning this name change, especially the black folks in the Washington, D.C. area who love the Washington football team. We can't sit there and talk about, oh, well, you know, hey, we should keep the name because it's tradition and it's something that I grew up with. And, you know, I love singing the fight song. And, you know, I love Native American people, too. And I want them to do better. And it's no big deal. And it's our history. And we're being PC and you know, we're not, don't, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. I would be a hypocrite. I would be a bigot. I would be uh, a racist in my own right. If I treated the Native Americans like that, if the Native Americans are telling me, the majority of Native Americans are telling me, Wendell, that nickname is offensive. That nickname is racist. That nickname is wrong. I ain't saying it. I'm not saying it. It stops. It stops. Because goddamn, I hate when folks who don't know what the fuck they're talking about concerning my community is trying to tell me, trying to educate me on what I should feel offended by, what really is racist, what really is bigotry in our community. I, I hate that. So I'm not going to be doing the same thing to the Native Americans, and neither should you. And neither should anybody in our community. And I, and I think in you know Black Lives Matter have a lot bigger fish to fry than that. But you know anybody, any black man who sits up there and comes back with, oh, you know the Native Americans. I mean, you know, just you know sit there and take it, and no big deal. And I love that. Uh, you know, I got my gear on, and I've got this, and I've been a big fan, and I've been a season ticket holder, and it doesn't offend me. It's no big deal. It's not going to change your situation. Y'all got other things to worry about. I saw on the news the other day that there was a Native American who said that that. It really isn't offensive or anything like that. All of these fucking excuses that white folks throw on us to sit there and tell us why we shouldn't be angry, why we shouldn't be outraged, why we shouldn't be fighting for a, 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 a better situation in this country. Don't do to the Native Americans what white folks are doing for us and for all intent and purposes when you're speaking about the black community, when you're speaking about others in terms of the... Uh, kin folks, the skin folks who ain't your kin folks, who decided to go across the tracks and join their and, and join their bullshit with that. So that needs to be changed. That name needs to be changed. And again, at the beginning when I decided that I wasn't going to use it anymore, I, sometimes I slipped and called it the nickname. I mean, I've been doing it for forty something years, so sometimes I slipped. But now I've gotten into the unconscious state of not saying that name. And I'm proud that I did. And I'm glad that I did. There's so many other things throughout the years with Daniel Snyder as the owner that I can 
have as a nickname for the Washington football team. I can call them the Washington Snyderskins. I can call them the Washington Ineptskins. I can call them the Washington Lutherskins. I can call them the Washington Deadskins. I can call them the Washington 3 and 13 skins. I can call them the Washington Another Season Lost skins. I can call them the Washingtons We Ain't Making the Playoffs Anymore skins. I can call them the Washingtons There's No Chance in Hell We'll Ever Be Great As Long As Daniel Snyder Is Our Owner skins. I can use the nickname the Washington My God Why Am I Still a Fan of the Team skins. I can use the nickname of the Washington I Must Be the Dumbest Motherfucker on This Planet To Still Care About This Team skins. I can call them the embarrassing skins. I can call them someone needs to shoot me before being a fan of the team skins. I can go in any different direction. I can call them the Washington, please, Dwayne Haskins, please develop as a quarterback skins. I can call them the Washington, for God fucking sakes, fire Bruce Snyder skins. I mean, there's several different avenues that I can go. The Washington, we're going to be in last place again skins. The Washington irrelevant skins. I mean, there's just so many different ways. There's so many different connections that we can make. There's so many similarities that we can use or, or things that we can have as far as the nickname is concerned that properly identifies what the team is all about more than that racial slur concerning Native Americans. So, yeah, that needs to be taken care of. That needs to be taken right now. And, you know, playing that song, you know, Hail to the land, hail victory, brave on the warpath, fight for all DC. I mean, just that brave on the warpath. I mean, it's like, come on, y'all. I would like to have the name changed to the Washington Red Tails. That would be cool. They're speaking about the Tuskegee Airmen. That would be great. That would be awesome. But, yeah, for the betterment of this country, because let me tell you, man, before I... I mean, the one thing about the Native Americans, the one disadvantage that they have, and one of the reasons why they really haven't advanced in terms of any type of any type of ground in trying to get some of this quote-unquote American dream that's uh, only affordable for some completely, is that, you know, throughout our history, we've had folks who have had the platform, who have had the identity, who have had the impact, who have had the, um, what should I say for, the, the, the power to move things. You know, we, we've had a Malcolm. We've had a Martin. We've had a Medgar. We've had a Jackie. We've had a Joe Lewis. We've had an Otis Redding. We've had a Thurgood Marshall. We've had the Civil Rights Movement. We've had the Black Panthers. We've had Jesse Owens. We've had Jack Johnson. We've had all of these incredible, incredible. We've had Frederick Douglass. We've had Harriet Tubman. We've had all of these historical figures speak out to the masses about the plight of the black man, of the black people in this community for centuries. And Hispanics have had, uh, um, oh my goodness gracious, Cesar Chavez. You know, in each different line as far as the women's suffrage, they've had their uh, people who have been able to uh, attract the attention of those who are trying for change. And again, it didn't happen overnight. Change, we didn't get to this place. We weren't picking cotton and then change and being slaves and being sold last Thursday. And then what happened in Minneapolis happened and now we're advancing to this place for black folks now. No, this shit happened over centuries. 
It had only happened because of great black Americans who were given platforms to speak the truth. And we had to go through strife. And we had to go through strain. And we had to go through tragedy. And we had to go through all these things. We had to go through deprivation. We had to go through discrimination. We had to go through oppression. Or we had to go through lynching. We had to go through all of these things to finally get to where we were. But at least we had people from our community who were able to get the attention and make that movement, whether it was, again, Malcolm or Martin or Medgar or Rosa Parks or anybody. The Native Americans haven't had anybody like that. We have, in any different walks of life, people of impact, people of influence, whether it's athletes, whether it's actors, whether it's politicians, whether it's activists, whether anybody who can get that spotlight, anybody who can get that platform, Black folks have that, and we've had that for centuries. Native Americans don't have that. Native Americans don't have a Malcolm. Native Americans don't have a Martin. Native Americans don't have a LeBron. Native Americans don't have an Arthur Ashe. Native Americans don't have those type of people who can go on MSNBC, who can go on CNN, who can go on Fox News, who can go on the radio shows, who can go on the Black Eagle Joe Madison, who can go on that asshole Rush Limbaugh show, who can go on and speak with Laura Ingram, who can go on and speak with Anderson Cooper, who can go on and speak with Rachel Maddow. We don't have anybody like that. There's nobody, there's no great Native American basketball player with the clout, with the power, with the influence, with the impact of a LeBron, of a Steph Curry. But go ahead and go on Twitter and talk about these things. We don't, the Native Americans don't have anybody like that. So it's going to be up to us. It's going to be up to us who are fighting for the rights of women and black and Hispanics and others. Whether you're an actor, whether you're an activist, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a musician. The Native Americans need us, whether you're with the Me Too movement, whether you're with the Black Lives Matter movement, whatever movement that you're with. Man, the Native Americans, they need us. They need us. I would love to have LeBron tweet about what's going on in the communities of the Native Americans. I would love to have Steph Curry tweet about what's going on with the situation with the Native Americans. I would love to have the NFL and the NBA and the Major League Baseball and NASCAR and the UFC and the NHL make some type of reference to what's happening with the plight of the Native Americans in some small way. I'm not talking about doing the same type of things that these organizations and these sport leagues are looking to do for uh, the black community. But damn, man, I mean, before anybody else got here, before white folks captured us in Africa and brought us over here, I mean, the Native Americans were the first one. They are the Native Americans. Now, they were the ones who were thrown off their land. They were the ones who were brutalized. They were the ones who were oppressed. And they still are. They're still being disrespected. So, again, this all goes back to the Washington football team name change. I mean, hell, I mean, how would we like it back in the day if there was a football team called the Cleveland Niggers? Or what happens if there was a football team back in the 1950s called the Los Angeles Coons? Or maybe there was a basketball team called the Chicago uh, Gorillas or, or, or the Chicago... Uh, Watermelon picker eaters. I don't know shit. I don't. I, or the, the, what happened if there was a baseball team called the uh, the Texas Spicks? I don't know. I'm just throwing out. You know what I mean? I mean that would never fly, right? That would never fly. 
If there was a team in any sport whose nicknames were the Coons or the or the Niggers or something like that, what kind of argument could you have where people would be sitting there talking about, well, that's a great, I mean, hell, I mean, that's been tradition. I mean, gee whiz, I mean, I grew up with that name. It's a great name. Do you see the mascot? It's awesome. What's the matter with you people? Snowflakes, PC, God, come on, get over yourselves. I mean, that's wrong. So I don't, I don't know how much the term Redskins is synonymous in terms of its racist overtones or anything with any slur from the black community or from the Hispanic community or from the Asian community. I, I, don't, I don't know if it reaches the same level as something as hurtful as the N-word, but, uh, you know, that shit needs to be corrected, and it needs to be corrected now. That's, that stuff needs to go. And again... Strength in numbers. Let's bring the Native Americans along with the rights and equal opportunity for blacks and for Hispanics and for women and for gays and for those who are being oppressed. Why not, man? Let's do this. Let's let's do this. Let's not turn a blind eye. Let's not just, you know, be complacent. Let's not be arrogant. Let's not be selfish in what we're trying to do here. Everybody deserves this chance. Everybody deserves equal opportunity. Everybody's community, who are those that have been oppressed, need to be elevated, needs to be uh, dealt with in a positive, loving, harmonious way. So let's go ahead and let's do this. Let's help out the Native Americans. Everybody, every community, let's start. And the simplest start can begin with changing the name the changing the nickname of the Washington professional football team. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mm, you know what I forgot? I should have done this yesterday on my Facebook page. Should have done a, a video about this, but, uh, you know, I was wiped out. Did a lot of Ubering this past two weeks, which is one of the reasons why I haven't been able to do the amount of podcasts that I wanted to do. Made a lot of money, but, you know, hey, but something had to sacrifice, right? But um, I should have done something last night, July 4th. Very important, of course, it's the 4th of July, but in the background here on my TV screen as I'm doing this podcast from my humble abode here in the Northwest Valley in Las Vegas, Nevada, in the background I have the documentary of Jack Johnson. Who? Jack Johnson. What? Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of the world. Ken Burns is an absolutely fantastic, marvelous documentarian. Is that even a word? Documentarian? I don't know. Fuck it. But he does an awesome, awesome job. His shit, Lewis and Clark was awesome. Jazz was awesome. Baseball was awesome. Vietnam, World War II, all, everything that this man comes up with. I didn't see country music because it's um, country music. But everything that this man does is just absolutely awesome. So years ago, he did something on Jack Johnson, who was the first black heavyweight of the world at the time when being the heavyweight champion of the world was a huge, huge symbol. I mean, it was regarded as possibly the most powerful man in the world, only maybe possibly behind 
kings and presidents of uh, nations. So this was a situation where Jack Johnson became the first black heavyweight champion of the world. And basically the white bigots at that time and white folks of their time lost their fucking minds because it was a symbol of Jack Johnson winning the heavyweight championship. It was a symbol of all of a sudden now, this could be the start. This could be the beginning of the possibilities of white folks losing their losing all um their power, losing all of everything that they have. You know, white folks, just like everybody else on this planet for the most part, they're selfish folks. They don't want to give up anything. And not just white folks, black folks, Asian folks. I mean, we don't want to give up anything as a nation, as a country, as a world. We're selfish. So a situation where all of a sudden now, white folks who are always been on top and have been since the settlers came to this country, all of a sudden now sees a black man as the symbol of strength, as the symbol of power, of the symbol of influence. And they were like, oh, hell fucking no. So we have to do something. So they get went ahead and got themselves this guy, Jim Jeffries, who retired as the heavyweight champion of the world back in around 1901. He retired undefeated. And he was the guy when he won the championship. This was the time where John L. Sullivan reigned. And this was the time where Jim Jeffries and and um, Bob Fitzsimmons and all those kind of people were out there winning the heavyweight championship. And you know, guys, again, were considered the strongest men in the world, the most powerful men in the world. But this was a situation where the hands of the belt were around those of a black man just just freaked white America out. So it went on to, we got to find some guy. We got to find a white guy, as Jack London would say, to wipe that smirk, to wipe that grin off the face of Jack Johnson. So, of course, they turned to Jim Jeffries and said, Jeff, Jim Jeffries, Jim, yeah, Jim Jeffries, and said, Jim, you got to, you got to come off the farm, my man. You got to do something. You got to come back and you got to get this heavyweight title championship belt back. I mean, we can't have Jack Johnson being the heavyweight champion of the world. Are you kidding me? So on July 4th, 1910, 120 years ago, 110 years ago, the fight of the century between Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson to basically decide, you know, what race is more superior. That's what the heavyweight championship meant at that time. Unbelievably so. We take a look at it now. We take a look at it as far as a sporting athlete being the quote-unquote baddest man on the planet. When did that moniker end? What were the last vestiges of that? What were the last, you know, embers of that? What, Mike Tyson? Possibly? Maybe? But nothing as far as the meaning and the impact and the power that it had back in the day around the turn of the century. So when Jack Johnson beat the shit out of Jim Jeffries... Yeah! And knocked this punk white ass out in 15 rounds. You know, this country lost its mind. It basically went into a race war. Basically went into a civil war. Because it was a situation of it just sent incredible fear into white America at the time. Oh my goodness gracious. I mean, Jack Johnson, the heavyweight champion of the world. Do you know what this means? Do you absolutely know what this means? Do you realize that, you know, it, with Jack Johnson being the heavyweight champion of the world, that we might have to... God forbid, integrate with the Negroes? Oh my goodness, you, you're you gonna try to tell me that, my God, that 
you know, we're going to be starting on the path of where we're going to have niggers living in our neighborhood. We're going to have niggers going to our school. We're going to have niggers working with our jobs. We're going to have niggers making the same amount of money as we do. And God for fucking bid, <gasps> heaven sakes alive, we're going to have those coons date, have fuck, and marry our daughters. Ah! I mean, <laughs> in the lost... A large part of white America lost their mind. You got to remember, Jack Johnson was around at the time where lynching was an everyday occurrence. There were about 890-something lynchings between 1900 and 1910. I mean, it was almost like Negroes were sitting around talking about, damn, man, could could y'all give us a break here? I mean, good Lord, have mercy. You're already treating us as second-class citizens. You're already doing enough to us. Now you got to go out and lynch us? I mean, can you back off just a little bit? So, at the time, this was Jack Johnson. So, when I talk about the importance of Jack Johnson, when I talk about the historical presence and the historical importance of Jack Johnson, be for sure that there is no civil rights movement without Jack Johnson. There is no Joe Lewis without Jack Johnson. There is no Jesse Owens without Jack Johnson. There is no Muhammad Ali without Jack Johnson. All of these folks, all of these wonderful, fabulous, unbelievable black Americans that are responsible for making a positive impact and influence in our country, these things possibly do not exist if July 4th, 1910 doesn't take place. If the results of July 4th, 1910 don't take place. If Jack Johnson, who was born in 1878 in Galveston, Texas, if he is just happy and content but being the black heavyweight champion of the world and fighting Sam Langford and Sam McVeigh and Peter Jackson and all those guys, if he's just content by winning the Negro heavyweight championship where you can make pretty decent money and not think about the impossible at that time and trying to gain the heavyweight champion of the, the championship of the time, Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows where we could be right now? Who knows if we have a Malcolm X? Who knows if we have a Martin Luther King? Who knows if we have a Thurgood Marshall? Who knows if we have a Fritz Pollard? Who knows if we have a Paul Robeson? Who knows if we have any of those influential people? Who knows? Who knows? And of course you could say, well, you know, without Harriet Tubman, without Frederick Douglass, without John Brown, without Nat Turner, there might not be an opportunity to have a Jack Johnson. Well, that's true, too. So it's all reciprocal. But, you know, Muhammad Ali at the time, he was, when he was doing his thing, when he first changed his name and everything, he was the modern-day Jack Johnson. If you took out the fact that Johnson was running around sleeping with white women, other than that, Muhammad Ali was the 1960s version of what Jack Johnson would have been if he was still around, if they would have taken him and put him in the 60s. Right there with the civil rights movements and everything that was going down. So, yeah, man, when I speak about such great Americans who have helped turn this country around for the betterment, and I always label them, and I always name them, and I'm always speaking about uh, Sam Cooke and James Brown and Otis Redding and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Sidney Poitier and, and all of those great musicians and artists and athletes, hell, fuck yeah, I'm going to name Jack Johnson. I'm going to name him with the more prominence and with the more importance and the more passion and with the more conviction than I will someone like a Jesse Owens who was a monster in what he did. Someone like a Joe Lewis who was a monster in what he did to pave the way. Someone like an Arthur Ashe. Someone like a Tommy Lewis and John Carlos. Someone like 
an Althea Gibson, someone like all of those unbelievable athletes and such. Jack Johnson, without him, man, without what happened in 1910, that ain't happening. That is not happening. So that's the 110th anniversary two days ago, Saturday, of Jack Johnson winning the heavyweight championship and, again, moving this country forward, moving it forward. And for black people, I would say that that's just as important what Jack Johnson did as uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence uh, uh, July 4th. Before you guys lose your mind, uh, Americans were free. Black folks weren't free July 4th, 1776. So go fuck yourself. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell. <laughs> but what presented me to say that? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So getting back to um, the Daniel Snyder situation and changing the name of the Washington professional football team, the Washington Snyder Skins, the Washington Red Tails, should I say. I'm going to start learning that name. Hopefully it'll have that, they'll change it to that name. So the team issued a statement, the football team issued a statement that they will undergo a thorough review of the team name and amid renewed pressure. And from the statement it said, in the light of recent events around our country and feedback from our community, the Washington, I'll say it, the Washington Redskins are announcing the team will undergo a thorough review of the team's name. This review formalizes the initial discussions the team has been having with the league in recent weeks. We believe this review can and will be conducted with the best interest of all in mind. And what Snyder also said in the statement was, this process allows the team to take into account not only the proud tradition and history of the franchise, but also input from our alumni, the organization sponsors, the National Football League, and the local community it is proud to represent on and off the field. This process allows the team to take into account not only the proud tradition and history of the franchise. You know what's really interesting when I think about this? Renaming the team... For the fans here in the DMV, this has the same emotional connection. That nickname has the same emotional connection for Washington football fans as NASCAR fans have with the Confederate flag. And I see those similarities because you see the same type of excuses being made by those who want to keep the nickname the same, the excuses that they've been using for years, and the same excuses that NASCAR fans use for why they want to keep the Confederate flag visible and present at NASCAR events. Interesting. Interesting. That just popped off the top of my head. That, yeah. So it's going to be emotional. And maybe that is time. I think that the Washington football fans will be more understanding and be more intelligent in the, in the, realization that the name has to be changed but yeah man you're just, I'm just thinking about it all of the excuses that you would hear black folks and white folks and, and football fans of the football team Washington football team make throughout the years on why it's okay to keep that nickname despite the fact that the Native Americans were like no bueno not good not good y'all need to change that it's offensive it's racist and everything and again you would hear black folks trying to tell the Native Americans the same type of shit 
that white folks have been trying to tell black folks in terms of, hey, come on now, let me explain to you why you shouldn't be offended. Number one, because I'm not. So those type of things moving on, moving on. Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Looking at this, part of the statement that I'm reading here, you know what doesn't make any sense? The statement where they say the proud tradition in history of the franchise when speaking about the Washington Snyderskins. And I'm thinking to myself, what proud tradition in history are we talking about? This franchise has been in Washington for 83 years. It came over in 1937 from Boston. They were the Boston Braves, I think. And they came over to Washington in 1983. So from 1937 to the present time, they've been nothing more than mediocre. If you take a look at, really, seriously, take a look at their overall record as far as their um, win-losses are concerned. It's, look at it, it's 609 and 609. Or says it 603 and 603? Yeah. Basically, they've been mediocre, 500. They've had two extraordinarily successful eras in their history. In 1937 and 1945, led by the great Sling and Slam and Sam and they won two NFL championships, lost another one, 73 to nothing in 1940 to the Chicago Bears. I mean, that's really, if you take a look at that era, that's probably the most recognizable thing that pops out. Not the fact that they won two NFL championships, the fact that they lost in an NFL championship game 73 to fucking nothing. George Hallis brought out the T formation and the Washington football team looked around at each other and said, Oh, how do we do this again? So that was the first extraordinary successful era, the fact that they won two championships. And then the Joe Gibbs era. God bless you, Joe Gibbs. From 1982 to 1992, they won three Super Bowl championships, three different quarterbacks. Doug Williams being the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, played in another Super Bowl where they got routed by the then Los Angeles Raiders, won the NFC East division five times. That, that was a time, if you think about it, when the Washington football team was doing their thing during that time period, the NFC East was the toughest division in football. As you speak about Bill Parcells and the, and the New York Giants and Dick Vermeil and the Philadelphia Eagles and the Arizona Cardinals, or St. Louis Cardinals, never mind. But two out of you know, three out of four ain't bad. So, yeah, those are the two great eras of Washington football. And then you could say that the George Allen era of 1971 and 1977, played in Super Bowl seven, lost to the undefeated Miami Dolphins 14-7. They came in second in their division behind the Dallas Cowboys and Roger Staubach five times. They made the playoffs five times. But other than that, man, take a look at their record. They're not 609 and 609. They're 603 and 603. Bottom line is they're mediocre. Great. Fabulous. What has been so wonderful? What has been so proud about the tradition? What, that they had someone like George Preston Marshall at their owner? That they were the last team in the NFL to integrate? And they had to be forced kicking and screaming to do so? That they've had Daniel Snyder, one of the worst owners in sports? That they were once owned by Jack Kent Cook, a lousy, horrible human being? Is that what the proud franchise of the Washington football team is all about? Daniel Snyder. Daniel Snyder. Ten losing seasons in his 20 years as the owner. One playoff win in his tenure as the owner. And who was that under? Joe Gibbs, baby. Damn, man, Vince Lombardi couldn't get, as a coach, couldn't get Washington into the playoffs. Otto Graham couldn't get that team into the playoffs. Coach after coach after coach. They went from 1946, 
proud historical franchise, right? This team is almost like the New York Knicks of football. The Washington football team went from 1946 to 1970 without making the playoffs. Making the playoffs! 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 And as I mentioned before, they were the last team to integrate under George Preston Marshall, who, again, had the famous quote, when, we, when we'll start signing Negroes when the Harlem Globetrotters start signing whites. Ain't you fucking funny, you lousy, low-life piece of shit. He went on a television show, the Oscar Levant show, I guess, and he asked Marshall if he was anti-Semitic, and Marshall said, oh, no, I love the Jews, especially when they're customers. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, someone send that over to the piece of shit that we have in the White House now. Maybe he can use that joke. <laughs> sure, I love blacks and Hispanics and Jews, especially when they're down in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> I love it. You know, they do a good job cleaning my rooms and sweeping my floors. <laughs> oh, that Donald Trump, ain't he so, that boy is so funny. <laughs> I don't know why every time I want to make fun of the followers of Donald Trump, I always go down south. Maybe because that's where most of them are. I don't know. I don't know. But the bottom line is, look, you know, Daniel Snyder is so afraid that he's going to be hurting the history of the Washington football team by changing his name. He doesn't want to go down in the history books as the man who changed the nickname of one of the most historical franchises in NFL history. Man, fuck that bullshit, man. Don't worry about that nonsense. Be on the side that's right. Because 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100... 200 years from now, this earth is still standing. We haven't destroyed it yet. You'll be going down in the history books as the guy, as the owner who made the right move. I mean, damn, you've been so lousy as an owner. If you're not going to give us a team that's going to win football games, at least give us some type of pride in doing this. So I can say the Washington Daniel Snyder did the right thing in changing the nickname skins. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I can change it to that. But again, change the fucking name. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You know, a lot of things in terms of July 4th that's happening. That happens. Jack Johnson, historical moment. Jack Johnson knocking out Jim Jeffries, winning the heavyweight championship or retaining the heavyweight champion, the historical importance of that, celebrating July 4th itself. But also another thing around this time that I always really look forward to, which is the start of Kenner League for the area uh, DMV college basketball players. And I haven't spoke about Georgetown basketball in so long. I'm just chomping at the bits, man, because I miss those guys. It's really hitting me, the fact that, you know, this is normally the time where, you know, I start really getting locked in in terms of something Georgetown related. Now, for me, I follow Georgetown basketball 365 days a year, in season, 
offseason. Of course, during the season, I'm going to be following them very closely. But especially with recruiting, you know, I'm always on Hoya Casual, Hoya Saxa, ESPN 24-7 recruiting, anything that I can do to try to get the latest news in terms of who's doing what, in terms of what high school basketball players are interested in Georgetown and interested in Connecticut and interested in UConn and interested in Villanova and interested in any other schools in the Big East and all of those type of things. You know, there's always something for me to do in terms of, you know, checking out my Georgetown Hoyas to get updated on my Georgetown Hoyas. I got my Facebook fan page with the Georgetown Hoyas that I'm a member of and anything Georgetown basketball related, I'm there. So it keeps me busy 365 days a year. But uh, the longest days for me for being a basketball fan for Georgetown is that last game when the season ends and then you have to wait all the way to July 4th. So you're talking about March, April, May, June. So you're almost taking a look at four and a half, almost five months for me to really get some, really get some stuff in terms of what the Georgetown basketball program or players are all about. Because with the Kinder League, as I mentioned before, you get players from Maryland, you get players from Georgetown, you get players from GW, George Washington, you get players from American, you get players from Virginia, you get players coming in on the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and they're bowling. And they're, they're pretty good games. I mean, it's a... Some people say it's a glorified all-star game, but for the most part, there's a little bit of defense being played. It's, is it the same intensity and everything like that as a regular season game? No, of course it isn't. It's a summer league game, of course, but it just gives me through highlights, because living out here in Las Vegas and before that, Phoenix, Arizona, and other places, I really haven't gotten the opportunity to go back and watch a Kenner League game in decades but it just gives me an opportunity because, you know, you have folks who do go down to McDonough Gym on the campus of Georgetown University back in the times and take a look at those games and report on those games and give the evaluations of those games. And if they can, sneak in some highlights, sneak in some video footage of those games. So it, 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 it quenches my thirst of wanting to get something Georgetown related to drink down, to quench uh, my desire to find out what's going on with some of those guys. And this year because or this summer because of what's happening with the COVID virus with COVID-19 I'm not going to be able to do those type of things so damn it most interested as far as the returning players are concerned Jamarco Pickett my man I mean he's been on Twitter I'm, I'm actually following this college kid here I am a 51 year old man following the guy who's what 21 22 but I, I just like what he's putting down I like the fact of these tweets that he's do, doing talking about He's dedicated, talking about he's working hard, talking about he's going to shock people, thanking Coach uh, Clinton in terms of helping him. The, the Co- Coach Clinton is the uh, 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 development coach for the team. And he's been working hard with uh, Jamarco, and he's been putting on weight and doing all these type of things, and he's going to shock the world. I guess Jamarco knows that this is his last uh, season to really make an impact. He has the skills. He has the talent to be a serviceable player in the NBA, be a ninth or 10th guy, have a good career, at least long enough to get himself a pension, an NBA pension, and he's good enough to be a professional basketball player somewhere in this world in terms of making some money, making some good money, making better money than any college graduate can make playing basketball, whether it be in China, whether it be in Spain, whether it be in France, whether it be anywhere in this country or anywhere in the world. As far as playing basketball is concerned, if he's trying to make the NBA, Jamarco would be serviceable as a 3 and D guy. A guy who can play defense and a guy who can hit corner threes and three-point uh, shooting. So, 
you know, after this year, I guess Jamarco is trying to make that jump, make that leap, make that improvement that uh, was similar to Harry Sim, Henry Sims, his junior to senior year when he was at Georgetown, when he went from a guy who was averaging around eight or nine points, speaking of Sims, his junior year, to someone averaging 16, 17 points a game and made himself some nice change and got himself a nice pension playing in the NBA for years, namely with the Philadelphia 76ers. So that's what Jamarco Pickett is doing. So I would have loved to see some of the highlights and just to see how Jamarco looked, see if he added a little bit of weight, see if he added some dribble drive to his game, see if he was able to finish with contact at the rim, see if he would be a better finisher, all the problems that he had, some of the weaknesses that he had as a junior with Georgetown. So him and Javon Blair, the two captains, the two leaders, the two guys who I think need to average anywhere between 15 and 21 points a game apiece for Georgetown to be successful. I would have loved to see what he was going to be up to, what he was going to look like in the summer league game. Now, he's out there, I believe, in Ontario, Canada. Lucky motherfucker living in Canada. But, uh, you know, he's up there. And his Twitter page, he does a lot of retweets. So we really haven't gotten any type of, hey, I'm working out. Hey, I'm doing this. Hey, I'm working on my dribble jive game. Hey, I'm looking up, working on my floater. Hey, I'm working on my defense. Hey, I'm working on my shot creation. All of those things. Now, maybe, you know, Coach Crouch can, you know, through Zoom or whatever, kind of give him some drills and give him some exercises and everything to get him better at those things. But I'm interested to see Javon Blair, his senior year, what he comes back as, if the college basketball season is even going to happen this year. All depends. We'll see what happens. So, you know, you got the returning players that I was really interested in seeing for Georgetown, the Jamarco Pickett's and Javon Blair's, as I mentioned before, the Timothy Eagle Hefe's, the Malcolm Wilson, who redshirted this year. I wanted to see if that guy put in any type of weight, see if that guy made any progress in those areas. I wanted to see Cutis Wahab, see how he looked going into uh, the Summer League. Because once the Summer League is over in August, it's almost the situation where you've turned that corner. Now you're on the back nine in terms of the college basketball season starting uh, in a regular, in a regular environment that we have. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what's going on, and I'm also interested to see the uh, the new guys, the incoming freshmen, and the and the uh, transfers. When you're speaking about Jamari Sibley and Dante Harris and the transfer from Arkansas, Jalen Harris and Chudier Bile and T.J. Berger, Colin Holloway, Kobe Clark. I'm, I'm interested to see how these guys are adapting. First, you know, they get on campus, and, you know, you're speaking about Sibley from Wisconsin, Dante Harris is from Tennessee, Berger is from down in Virginia, Holloway is from Louisiana, Kobe Clark is from the St. Louis area. So from those guys going into a total different environment, it would have been interesting to see how those guys are acclimating themselves. I, I don't know. I don't know. I would love to see. I would like to see a little bit better definition in terms of who's going to be taking over the point guard position if there's a season. When you're speaking about Jalen Harris, the transfer from Arkansas, who saw his playing time decrease this season after starting all 34 games as a sophomore and averaging seven points, five assists, three rebounds in 30 minutes, and then this past season in 30 past season in 32 games, his numbers dropped to four points, two assists, one rebound in 24 minutes with only five starts. We'd love to see the competition between him and Dante Harris. Let's watch a lot of these guys on YouTube. And look, I understand. You know, when these guys are doing their highlights and their videos and everything, I understand that they're not going to put anything foul on their highlight reels. But at least when I take a look at them, I can get a sense 
of what they can bring, a sense of what they're good at, a sense of how their game is like, and just give it a thought process of how it's going to transfer to the next level. So it's, I would have loved to see T.J. Berger or Colin Holloway. I would love to see these guys, what they're looking like in their summer going into their freshman year at Georgetown. So, yeah, man, I miss my Georgetown Hoyas. I miss, miss, I miss, 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 miss them. I wish I could have watched them during the summer, but, oh, well, life is life. World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me end with this, doing a little college basketball news. Imani Bates deciding on to go to Michigan State. Who in the hell is Imani Bates, Wendell? Let me tell you. He's a six foot eight small forward from Lincoln High School up there in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He's the number one basketball recruit in the class of 2022, and he's considered by some to be the best basketball recruit in high school regardless of classification he's being called the best prospect high school prospect since wait for it you betcha lebron james almost 20 years ago in fact when espn pulled more than a dozen grassroots basketball experts last summer about the best high school prospects since lebron james bates finished third behind kevin durant and greg odin 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 was a bust, Odin. So you take a look at Bates, his accomplishments. He became the first sophomore to be named the Gatorade National Boys Basketball Player of the Year. As a high school freshman, he led his team to the state championship at first and then led him to a 19-3 record in the spot in the District 18 state tournament final until the, of course, the COVID-19 happened and shut everything down. He plays on the Nike EYBL circuit for the Bates fundamental program coached by his father in last season at the Peach Jam, Nike Peach Jam. He averaged 32 points and 10 rebounds, and he chose Michigan State over a handful of other offers and uh, basically said that, you know, me and Tom Izzo has a have a great relationship, and that's one of the reasons. And, of course, another reason why he chose Michigan State is because basically they were the only ones that were recruiting him because there's a longstanding belief among that's college basketball folks that Bates is going to go and jump to the NBA. The rule is still in place right now for NBA players or NBA draft uh, players who are eligible to be drafted out of high school to be at least 19 years old. So this is a situation where, you know, people are saying that rule is going to be taken care of in the next round of negotiations. So by the time the 2022 draft comes around, high school players will be able to go in the NBA, so why are we going to waste our time with a guy who's supposed to be the second coming of LeBron James? We don't have a choice. And Tom Izzo is saying, well, wait a minute. You know, we, we don't know, and we don't know. Armani Bates has been sitting up there talking about, well, I've not made a decision on 
whether I'm going to go straight from high school or to the NBA or I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to go to college myself. I never said anything. It's you guys. You guys are up there talking about I'm going to be going straight from high school into the NBA. You guys are assuming that, you know, that's going to be possible by the time the draft rolls around in 2022. I, even if it is, I, I never said that. And I don't blame them. And I definitely, I think it's extremely smart on Tom Izzo to go ahead and do that. And there's people even saying, you know what? Even if the rule doesn't change and he has to be 19, with this G League select team that's now taking players from high school and they don't have to go to college and they're getting paid $500,000. And Jalen Green, I think, is the guy from Fresno who's supposed to be the top high school player in this class for 2020. And instead of going to college, he's going to be going to the G League. And I think they're going to be paying him $500,000. He's going to have an opportunity to sell his, you know, his likeness and everything to make more money. And the thought process is, well, in 2020, if you're going to be paying Jalen Green $500,000 in 2022, if Imani Bates lives up to the hype, just think how much the G League is going to be paying him to go to play on their select team. Could it be a million? Could it be 800000 Could they put together some type of advertising package to where he gets a base salary and he gets to have the opportunity to make more money through advertisements? I mean, if you're the G League, if you're that G League select team and you're trying to get this program off the ground and you've already had about five or six players uh, high school players who are supposed to be going to college for next season all of a sudden change their mind and say that they want to play in this on this select team. I mean, if you're a part of that, aren't you going to try to do everything that you can to get Imani Bates? And yes, I know that there's some shenanigans going on in college basketball and college athletics, but there ain't no program out there that's going to have a million dollars or close to a million dollars to give Imani Bates for them to go to Kentucky with John Calipari. <laughs> Excuse me, for any uh, college uh, college basketball program to cheat. <laughs> so, yeah, man. So all of that stuff is being worked out right now, and all of that stuff is being talked about right now. But my main thing for bringing this up is this. Man, haven't we gone down this route before? If we're speaking about hoop dreams with Arthur A.G., where at the 14-year-old, 15-year-old, he was whooping ass, or no, Arthur A.G. and the other guy. Arthur Agee was the late bloomer, but the other guy was supposed to be, you know, the man and this, that, and the other, and he didn't pan out well, and, you know, he didn't, as far as the basketball recruit is concerned, he didn't live up to expectation, whether it be because of injury or whatever, but it didn't pan out. But we just hear so many of these stories, man. We just hear so many of these guys who at 14, 15, 16 years old are supposed to be the next Julius Serving, who are supposed to be the next Magic Johnson, who are supposed to be the next Michael Jordan, who are supposed to be the next Isaiah Thomas, who's supposed to be the next LeBron James who's supposed to be the next Dirk Nowitzki all of these guys get mushed into this stuff and then when they don't make it we take a look at them and say well what the fuck's your problem who knows man maybe it's a situation where they maxed out Gene Banks had an awesome freshman year way back in the day for Duke University with Mike Jeminski and Jim Spernarkel that was before Coach K came around that Duke was actually a program that did pretty well in basketball Back when uh, you had, you know, the rivalry between Duke and Maryland and North Carolina when the ACC was clearly popping, Clemson was a good basketball program at that time. So Gene Gene Banks was a guy who was very instrumental for 
Duke making it to the final four or to the final game where they lost to Kentucky and Jack Givens. I believe it was 1978. But he plateaued. I mean, he reached his potential his freshman year. By the time he was 19, he had hit the ceiling. So he didn't get any better or the trajectory to which he was supposed to go because it was like, well, damn, this guy is this good as a freshman. Could you imagine how good he's going to be three years from now? Could you imagine how good he's going to be five years from now, 10 years from now? Holy shit. Well, no, he plateaued. He just plateaued. So we can say that from Shea Cotton. We can say that with Andrew Wiggins. We can say that with so many of these guys. Andrew Wiggins was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to be the next unbelievable super, superstar. He was supposed to be the guy that was going to take the torch from LeBron James in terms of being that unbelievable face of the franchise generational type superstar. Andrew Wiggins, O.J. Mayo, Jabari Parker, Ben Simmons, Harry Giles was supposed to be the second coming of Chris Webber or Chris Webber 2.0. R.J. Barrett was supposed to be the best candidate or best prospect coming out of Canada ever. Shabazz Muhammad was supposed to be an unbelievable prospect and be a guy who could really do some damage until they found out that he was 47 years old playing still in high school. Austin Rivers, uh, Doc Rivers' kid, he was supposed to be a guy who was supposed to be a generational talent when he was in high school. We see this shit all the time. All the time. And I'm saying pump the brakes, man. Because most of the time, the great basketball players, one of the awesome things about LeBron would make them even greater, which he makes him even a novelty unto himself even more, with the fact that he lived up to the hype. He lived up to the greatness when everybody was projecting that he would be awesome at 15 and 16 and had his picture on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was still in high school. He was one of the few guys along with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who actually lived up to the hype. But take a look at some of these other high school phenoms and what happened to them. Again, Andrew Wiggins, bust. O.J. Mayo, if you're comparing the expectation when he was 15 years old to what his NBA career was like, bust. Jabari Parker, who was supposed to be the guy who was going to take the mantle, who was going to take the legacy of Ben Wilson from Simeon High School in Chicago. He was going to be the guy that had people say, see, if Ben Wilson was still alive, if he didn't get murdered when he was going into his senior year in high school, when he was the number one prospect, basketball prospect in the country, 6'9", could shoot, could do all these things, right up there in terms of name recognability, uh, recognition in Chicago with Michael Jordan in terms of, you know, uh, name recognition in that area. Ben Wilson was killed. Jabari Parker was supposed to carry his legacy. He's been a bust. Ben Simmons was supposed to be the next version of Magic Johnson to be determined, but I'm quite sure that it's been a bust. Harry Giles, now his knees gave out. His knees gave out even before his senior year in high school, but he was supposed to be the next Chris Webber when he was a freshman and sophomore and junior in high school. He's been a bust with Sacramento. So Shabazz Muhammad is not even in the league anymore. Shea Cotton was supposed to be the next great thing, and he turned out to be a bust. Kevin Madden, way back in the day, he was supposed to be the next great thing when he was in high school for North Carolina. He turned out to be a bust. J.R. Reed, when he was a sophomore in high school, he was supposed to be James Worthy times two. He was a bust. Um, Lloyd Daniels, who was supposed to be the next Magic Johnson, and George Gervin rolled into one. He was supposed to be a guy who was supposed to be the next great basketball player. He was a bust. I mean, we could just keep naming them on and on and on and on and on. And look, I, I get it. 
in terms of what these scouts are all about, trying to find the next great thing, trying to find the next, you know, great, unbelievable player. I mean, you want to be that guy if you're a scout to be, to be, to put on your tombstone, to put on your resume. I was the guy who first identified Michael Jordan as being the greatest basketball player alive. I was the guy when he was in eighth grade, in ninth grade, in tenth grade that said that LeBron James was going to be the guy that's going to be a generational great. I was the guy who on the New York playground saw this skinny kid whose name was Louis Alcindor who loved jazz and baseball more than he did basketball. I was that guy who took him and said that you can become the greatest basketball player who ever lived or become a fixture as far as being a great basketball player. I was that guy who saw all of these folks. That's part of their job. That's their ultimate. You know, that's hitting the lottery. That's hitting the jackpot for these guys. So if they're going to be playing the lottery and start naming these folks, they're going to go ahead and do it. So the projection is there. Andrew Wiggins, my goodness gracious, he had the leaping ability. He had this, he had that. Turns out he didn't have the want, he didn't have the desire, he didn't have the passion. I don't even know if Andrew Wiggins even loves to play basketball. I think he likes to play basketball. I think he's really good at basketball, so because of that, he doesn't mind it. But as far as his eagerness, his passion, his dedication to become all-time great, it's not even close. I mean, hell, if Andrew Wiggins had Kobe Bryant's type of intensity and drive and desire, maybe he would have lived up to all the hype. But he didn't. Jabari Parker. You know, it's just so many different different deals there. So Elgin, I'm sorry, so um, um, Imani Bates, who knows? Who knows? He's going to be transferred. He's going to be playing at a prep school that is run by his father. Good Lord. Why did this man go to, like, Oak Hill? Or why didn't he go to, you know, one of the power IGM or something like IMG Academy or Monteverde or something like that? One of these basketball basketball powers. He's going to put his, he's going to put his uh, career in the hands of his father, huh? Okay. So Elgin Bates is opening up a prep school to run a satellite camp at AIM High Academy in Michigan, and he's recruiting some of Imani's AAU teammates and other top 2022 talent around the country. They plan on playing a national schedule, and they're already expecting 2022 prospects Javon Hanna, Sean Phillips, and Dylan Hunter to join the field. All right. All right. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I just think that this... Rush to wow, this guy's the next this, that, and the other man. Slow it down, man. Slow it down. I want to end with this here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you. I want to talk about McCore Maker. Let me tell you something, man. If he ain't going to Georgetown, let it be, let it be one of the HBCU schools. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Speaking words of going to college for play basketball. Let it be Georgetown, if not, let it be Howard. And in this world of confusion, this six foot ten five star recruit is standing next to me, speaking words of wisdom. Go to Georgetown. Don't you want to play for Patrick Ewing? He's an NBA All Star center, speaking words of wisdom. Go to Georgetown, but if not, man, go to uh, HBCU schools. And I think it's awesome. I think it's fantastic. He chose Howard University. 
McCord Maker is one of the best recruits in the 2020 class. He's a consensus five-star center and the 17th best overall prospect in the class. He chose Howard over Kentucky. Oh, damn. Sorry about that, Cal. He chose Howard over Kentucky, UCLA, and Memphis. Woo! Nice job, Kenny Blakeney, my man. He wrote on his Twitter about the decision. He said, I was the first to announce my visit to Howard, and others started to dream, what if? I need to make the HBCU movement real so that others will follow. I hope I inspire guys like Mickey Williams, Mikey Williams to join me on this journey. I am committing to Howard University and coach Kenny Blakeney. <laughs> nice. My dad spent some time at Howard University getting his uh, upper degree and living downtown and doing his thing down there in Georgetown University. So I have a connection with Georgetown University. My brother, my closer the brother, Mikel Davis, went to Howard University. So, yeah, man, good job. Good job. I mean, you're talking about the core maker. He could be the best player in Howard history since Larry Spriggs. That's a name for you, huh? That's a name for you, Wex. Larry Spriggs. So, he go to Howard University to play basketball. Last season, the team finished 4-29 four and, four and overall. They were 1-15 in the conference. And in their history as a basketball program, they made two NCAA appearances, one in 1981, the other in 1992. And they're the conference regular season champion four times, 1980, 83, 87, and 1992. I think it's, I think it's awesome, man. I really think it is. And who knows? And I, I've said this before. You know, people want to sit there and poo-poo and downgrade college. I think that college, especially if you're coming from the black community, where in many instances, especially if you're a, a basketball prospect, a lot of these guys get the opportunity to go to a, a specialty school, don't get to go to a private school, whether, you know, we're speaking about the basketball powers in, uh, at, at Oak Hill in Mouth of Wilson, Virginia, or in Mount Verde down there in Florida, the IMG Academy. I mean, normally these guys, you know, gravitate once they find out that they're really great, they're four- and five-star recruits, they normally leave the community of where they go to school so they can, quote-unquote, get themselves ready for college basketball and then quickly get themselves into the NBA. Finley Prep out here in Henderson used to have a, a program like that where I think they won the National Basketball High School Basketball Championship a few seasons ago. Avery Bradley went there. Manute Bowles' kid went there. Um, Bishop Gorman is another uh, high school. They're really awesome in football for years and years and years. And you had people from all over the country going to the private school out here over on the southwest side of uh, Vegas. And the basketball team was no difference. You had Zach Collins and you had Shabazz Muhammad and you had all of these guys um, at Bishop Gorman. You know, the tuition over there is like, you know, the cost of a of a you know of a house and all those type of things and matter day and all, all of these places so yeah for those in the community you know they get the opportunity not to go to their high school high school in the in the neighborhood shall we say but still I think for the development of these guys as young men when they get out of that environment that they're in to go to an HBCU school man just to see a different flavor. Because for the most part, when you go to these other schools, you're basically handing around uh, folks from on your basketball team. And, you know, for the most part, you're not really interacting with the student body at any of these schools, especially when you're speaking about someone like an IMG Academy or a Finley Prep or something like that, where they have different 
athletic programs to where they also recruit. So you're not really getting an idea. You're not really getting the type of diversity that you really need from within the black community if you're a, a black kid who's a five-star recruit that's going somewhere else to play basketball. But when you get to these HBU, HBCU schools, whether you're speaking to play basketball, for instance, in the future, if you're going to follow um, McCor's um, uh, journey, and you're going to go to these schools such as Morgan State to play basketball or South Carolina A&T or FAMU, Florida A&M, North Carolina Central, Delaware State, Jackson State, Prairie View A&M, Grambling, Bowie State, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, Alcorn State, Hampton. If you're going to be going to any of these places, you know what's just mind-blowing? Especially if you're just coming from the neighborhood, if you're just coming from the block. You go and you step on these campus campuses and you see black folks in an entirely different light. And the experience that you have, even if you're going to stay there six months, I'm not expecting McCor to stay there four years, three years, two years. Look, man, we know this is a one-and-done deal. He tried to get himself into the NBA before, the fall of his brother Thon, but because of the rules, he couldn't do it. They've tried every which way but loose. And I think the... Um, feedback that they got was, even if they did, even if there was a way for him to get into the NBA draft, he wasn't going to be drafted anyway, especially now with everything so topsy-turvy with COVID-19. So I'm not expecting this kid to stay four years at Howard University. I'm not expecting any kid who's going to be going to these schools to stay four years if they're going to be four and five-star recruits. But in that six-month period, for their developmental growth, for their ability to mature and to broaden their horizon and to get a better understanding of themselves and what they could be. Going to an HBCU school for a black kid is so much better than if he went to Duke or if he went to Kansas or if he went to uh, Oklahoma State or Oklahoma or Michigan or Michigan State or North Carolina or any or Kentucky or any of these places. To go to these big predominantly white schools who basically see this guy as just a basketball player. The experience is so much more richful and fulfilling when you go to an HBCU school for these kids. I would love, and it ain't going to happen because it's all about money. I get it. I understand it. And it's wishful thinking. But man, I would love to have the opportunity if we started to see an influx. Let's just say, for instance, the top 150. The top 150 recruits, right? Let's just say, for instance, 10 to 12 of them, 10 to 12 in the top ESPN top 100, really consider going to an HBCU school, and maybe five or six of them do. Not to all one school, but, you know, two go to schools in the SWAT. The other two go to schools in the MEAC, and then other ones go to, um, you know, uh, Hampton or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't it be nice if the players knew you saw this and said, well, wait a minute, you know what? Let's kind of hold off on the rule about you need to, uh, you can go straight from high school to the NBA. Let's hold off because if we see these kids coming to our leagues after spending some time at these historical black universities and colleges, they are going to be so much better people as well as players. Let's just hold off on that. It'll save the jobs of the veterans who have been there 13, 14, 15 years who want to get one more paycheck before they say sayonara. So let's just go ahead and do that. I would love for that to happen. Now, is that wishful thinking? Sure. Is that going to be happening? 
No. Is that unrealistic? Probably. But in Wendell's world of sports and my world, that would be awesome. That would be fantastic. And I'll tell you one thing right now, because I spent some time on Howard University's campus. Again, my closer than brother, Mikel Davis, went to Howard University. So 18, 19, you know, when I was doing my thing, after I came back from Tennessee, I would uh, go up there with him, you know? I mean, he was, and I would, sometimes I would actually sneak in and sit in on a couple of his classes. But so I walked around that campus and I went to Blossoms and I went to the clubs where the um, females from Howard University would show up. And I went to the inner caucus events and I went to the NAACP events uh, back in those days um, when, I was, when I was in DC. And let me tell you something, man. There ain't any college co-eds on this fucking planet who are as attractive and sexy as the ones who are at HBCU schools. Without a doubt, without question, without argument. I don't give a fuck, man. You could name me Chico State. You could name me the University of Florida. You could name me Florida State. You could name me North Carolina. You could name me any school in the country and talk about, ooh, they're co-ed. You could talk about USC. You can talk about the University of Texas. I don't give a fuck. The best, most attractive, most beautiful females on college campuses right now go to HBCU. I lost my fucking mind, man, when I walked on that campus at Howard University with my man, Mikel Davis, at 18, 19 years old and saw those absolutely beautiful, beautiful black women walking on that campus. Good Lord have mercy. Dark skin, light skin, red bone, jet black, big, small, tall, short. It, did, uh, it was just, I was in heaven. I was in heaven. There are so many beautiful females. And these females are smart. These females are strong. These females are independent. These females don't take no shit. These females are the fucking bomb.com, man. So I'm thinking to myself, good Lord have mercy as I'm doing this podcast right now. I'm thinking about these kids who come from these neighborhoods where they don't see something like that. They don't see black kids like that. They don't see women like that. You know, in our community, for the most part, women, black women have been disrespected. Hoes, bitches, and all those type of stuff. Sometimes I do use, I use those words. Shame on me. Shame on me. Shame on me. Bad on me. But, you know, lyrics, whether it's right or wrong, in our music, in our culture, you know, it's denigrating, downgrading black women. I don't love them hoes, right? That type of thing, you know? Bitch, you better have my money. All that type of shit, right? You know? All that. It's, so you see these guys who might come from that environment who are not able to see females like that. And they get on that campus and they see black people like this who are strong, who are educated, who are articulate, who are thoughtful, who are worldly. And you see black folks from all over the country. And when we're talking about HBCUs all over the world, and you see the connections and you see black folks acting like that, which in some instances is a complete opposite of where they're coming from in terms of their desire, in terms of where they're going, in terms of their plans, in terms of what they're doing with their lives, in terms of their ambitions and their goals. And they see these beautiful, beautiful black women of all shapes and sizes and colors and different backgrounds looking as fine as they do on the campuses of North Carolina A&T, Virginia State. You go to Morehouse, Spellman is right across the street, babe. You go to those type of schools and you see those type of women, Fisk, Grambling, 
Tuskegee, Alcorn State. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I don't need Duke. I don't need North Carolina. If I'm if I'm one of these top tier guys, why do I need to go to Kentucky for? Why do I need to go to Kansas for? Why do I need to go to North Carolina for? Why do I need to go to UCLA for? Why do I need to go to Arizona for? Why do I need to go to Gonzaga for? Why do I need to go to any of these schools except for Georgetown University where, let me tell you something, when Big John was bringing in recruits to Georgetown back in the day, you know, when they would go out, you know, you go for the campus visit and they take a look at this and they would go into the office and you would see the deflated basketball and he would explain, you know, that basketball represents what are you going to do once your basketball career is over? You get yourself a degree at Georgetown. You can do this, that, and the other. You know, don't let your life be defined by what errors in this basketball and everything like that. But when Big John would go ahead and do that type of stuff and he would make sure, and those players who were their chaperones, on their recruiting visits, they would damn make sure that they would go over and let them take a look at them female from Howard University. They would damn sure, if there was a party going on at Howard University, they would damn sure John Thompson and those players would make sure that those recruits would go over to uh, Howard University and take a look at those beautiful black women and say, my man, that's what, that's what, a couple of Metro Rides stops down the street? You know, they would take them over to them places, sold, Sold. I get to play basketball for John Thompson, Georgetown University, and play the biggies, and I have access to beautiful women like this no more than 15, 20 minutes away. Sold. They wouldn't take them to be taking a look at co-ed from Georgetown. They wouldn't be taking them down on M Street, especially at that time when it was so segregated, that time with Georgetown. Back when I was down there, man, you go up and down M Street on Georgetown, there'd be nothing but white folks down there. But, you know, you take them over to the... Um, to the Howard University side, you take them down Georgia Avenue to where Howard University is in that area and let them know that you have access to beautiful women like this? Shit. Where, where, where do I sign? So, yeah, man. Way to go, McCore Maker. It's doing that type of stuff. And, I mean, this can only happen in basketball. You know, there's just you know, football you don't have to worry about. And really, I don't think. <laughs> I know for a fact that Calipari and Bill Self and all those guys aren't sitting there shivering going, oh my gosh, is Kenny Blakely going to be our new thorn in our side along with every other black head coach from these uh, HBCUs? Nah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Coach Cal, Coach K, and all those guys, you still only get your fair share, your good number of five-star recruits, but it's just refreshing to see Howard and some of the HBCU schools Go ahead and do this. Don't give me some bullshit about, well, you're not going to be able to play against the top-tier schools. Believe me, if you can play, you'll be drafted. Scotty Pippen was drafted, what, in the first seven or eight rounds playing at Central Arkansas State, all right? Enos Cantor was drafted in the top five picks by the Utah Jazz. He didn't even play college basketball. He sat out because of uh, NCAA violations for Kentucky. So he didn't even play a game. You have these European guys being drafted in the top six, top seven, like, you know, Durko Milicic was drafted after Carmelo and uh, Carmelo and LeBron James because Joe Dumars was enthralled with the workout that he had, a private workout that he had with the Detroit Pistons. That's how Darko Milicic got drafted so high. Nicholas Skidavili, a guy who was supposed to be the next Dirk Nowitzki, was averaging, what, one point and two rebounds over there in some Turkish league? But because he was seven feet tall, could dribble and walk and chew gum at the same time, people were talking about, hey, this guy could be the, the next Dirk Nowitzki. Dirk Nowitzki 
but not even on anybody's radar until he played in the world game when he was uh, against uh, high school seniors. When he was a young lad and he came over to Portland, Oregon at the Nike headquarters and he lit up the best high school basketball players at that time. He scored like 35 points and had like 15 rebounds. And Donnie Nelson at the time for the Dallas Mavericks was like, hey, it looks like we got ourselves a franchise player over here. So if you can play, you can play. It doesn't matter. If McCormaker can play, going to Howard University is not going to prevent him from being a high draft pick. Believe me. They'll, if, if you can play, they'll find you. So you don't think folks are going to be driving down? You don't think NBA scouts and everybody else and GMs are going to be driving down to uh, Howard University's campus to watch McCorn Maker play, whether he's playing against Morgan State or Bowie State or any other school in that conference, the MEAC? He'll, get, he'll do well. And as Kenny Blakeney said, I need to do well with this kid because if everything turns out right, it will entice others to once again, if they're going to be going to college, to go ahead and choose an HBCU school. I mean, not every five-star recruit is going to be draft eligible. Not every five-star recruit is going to be a lottery pick. Not every five-star recruit coming out of high school is going to be a guy who's just going to have a cup of coffee at a university and then declare for the NBA draft. And even if those guys do go to the NBA after high school because they changed the rules, well, then there's still going to be the next wave of folks who might not be good enough to go to the NBA right out of high school who needs a year or two or three or four of college basketball. Where are they going to be going? You still got to recruit those players, right? And those guys are still going to be essential for you guys to build a strong basketball program, especially if most all sums of the five-star recruits aren't going to be going to college at all because of the G League select team or because of the rule saying you can go straight from high school to the NBA. So come on, man. Come on. And remember, no the most beautiful college co-eds walking on this planet go to HBCU schools. Overall, all around, when you're speaking about intelligence, when you're speaking about beauty, when you're speaking about, and there ain't nothing better in this world than a good black woman. There ain't nothing better. There is, there is no more attractive, sexy creature walking this planet than an attractive, strong, beautiful black woman. None. There's very few of them, but no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm still looking. Free agent. Unrestricted. Don't let the age and the weird personality fool you. I'm a good man. I'm a fat man. I'm a strong man. My phone number is 702. I'm joking. I'm joking. Let me get out of here before I get myself in trouble. Well, I thank you very much for listening to the program. Um, I'll be back very soon to talk about more of what's going on in the world of sports. In the meantime, be good, be strong, learn, listen, educate, mature, tell somebody that you care, Some tell, tell somebody that you love them, be good to yourself, be good to others. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Music. <laughs>